This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on this side. Everyone needs a coach, you know, just to get you through life. But not Donald Trump, apparently. He is killing it. (gasps) If you hear that, uh, I don't know what it would even be called, just that moaning, groaning from Las Vegas, that's probably Rubio and Cruz. Wondering what is going on. It'd be Cruz because Rubio left early. Oh, that's right. <laughs> he headed off to one of the Super Tuesday states. He's Rubio's like, ah, I'm not going to win here. I'm out of here. Moving on. Uh, Donald Trump wins the Nevada caucus uh, 45.9% of the vote. Which is. I came in like a Tearing it up. <laughs> He's killing it. Apparently. When uh, Jeb Bush gets out of the race, those votes don't necessarily go to Rubio or Or Cruz. Cruz. No. They went to Sir Donald Trump. Well, in Nevada. He's had a lead for uh, this this size of a lead for about two, three weeks. Do you think it's a huge advantage to be a uh, a casino owner tycoon in the Nevada caucus? Well, it's free advertising. There's a building with your name on it. (laughs) Totally. That doesn't seem fair. I think if if you're going to run in Nevada, everybody should have a building with their name on it. <laughs> What's that, equal time? Yeah. Equal time. Interesting stuff, folks. Donald Trump, 45.9%. Marco Rubio came in second, 23.9% with five delegates. Donald got 12 delegates. And Cruz and Rubio have the same amount of delegates, five each. But Cruz came in a close third. I don't hear him bragging about that either. <sighs> this is getting crazy. And if you are counting the vote, um, uh, uh, Ron Paul and Jeb Bush and Chris Christie also got 0.2% and 0.1% of the vote, even though they're no longer running. Is it right to have people who have bowed out of the race Yes. still on the ballot? No. They had ballots, pictures showing up on Twitter last night, of the full list of people who had you know previously been running were all included on the list when it should have just been the people you know there's like what five candidates right now that yeah. are still active but the rest of them were still on the list yeah it seems like it's probably just too expensive to change all the machines and i i don't know or maybe they're legally on the ballot because they applied and they're on I guess it and just seemed they just chose to bow out before they got to that election. It was just people questioning when you do that because you're those people aren't running anymore, but they're they're pulling votes from the people who are. The, it, you know what it, it is, and luckily they're not pulling very many. Um, that was one of many issues last night at the Nevada polls. But you know what I love? There's no better. There's just no better. How do you say this? Spirit than an excited Donald Trump. Talking about um, everybody that he loves because there's – seriously, this guy, he loves everybody because he got pretty much everybody's vote. We won the evangelicals. We won with young. We won with old. We won with highly educated. 
We won with poorly educated. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. And you know what I really am happy about? Because I've been saying it for a long time. 46% with the Hispanics. 46%. Number one. (laughs) Did he say he loves the poorly educated? He does. There is people. Well, that's very loving. It doesn't sound like like the proper thing to say. No, but it sounds like something Ben would say. Yes, that we'd have to like edit out of the show and then explain to people all over the office. Yeah, and then for several know, days and send letters yeah. to the president of the school. I, I didn't have to explain it to anybody. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, that's all we've done for three days. Oh, it's probably because I leave right after yeah. the show. Yeah. It's amazing. You, you do, light the like fire a, and yeah, run. It's like we, a drive-by. It's great. Um, Forty-six percent of the Hispanic vote, which is amazing because do people not remember that he dissed all of Mexico and every Hispanic? Not all of Mexico, just the criminals that are coming across the border. But the illegals are rapists and every other name you could call them. That's not all Hispanics. That's That's just those. Just those. And we are – it's alleged. And then he he finished his victory speech with, again – we're going to build a wall. Mexico is going to pay for it. It's okay. I'm going to go talk to them about it. They're going to understand. They'll They're get going it. They're going to pay for it. We pay them a lot of money. It's fine. So he says. We give them a lot of money. The president of Mexico came out about a month ago and said, we're not paying for a wall. Someone asked him. So he- Well, he hasn't talked to Donald. <laughs> yeah. They'll they haven't had a meeting yet. Um, but Trump also makes, I think, a really good point um, when he talks about the fact that it, in the end – you got to account. You can't just have like Kasich drop out, and now apparently the GOP leaders are like, "Okay, Kasich, you got to go." But apparently, uh, that doesn't just mean all those votes go to someone else. He's going to get some of those votes. So tonight we had forty-five, forty-six percent, and tomorrow you'll be hearing. You know, if they could just take the other candidates and add them up, because you know the other candidates amount to fifty-five percent. So if they could just end, they keep forgetting that when people drop out, we're going to get a lot of votes. Well, and everybody has believed they won't. But they are. What is happening? Trump mania. It's the hair. This is how worldwide wrestling took off. (laughs) That's how it works. It's exactly the same model. Oh, wow. Anybody that says that Trump can't do it now needs to just shut their caker. Because he's, he's doing it. He's halfway there. Yeah. Now now you have to see what he – and in super the Super Tuesday states, he's leading in many of those states. Ted Cruz has Texas and I think one other that he's leading in at the moment. In fact, Cruz has a belief that, that he can actually beat Trump. The undeniable reality that the first four states have shown is that the only campaign that has beaten Donald Trump and the only campaign that can beat Donald Trump is this campaign once yeah can't you just see him like pointing to himself with his thumb oh yeah is this campaign i took out the pauses because mm-hmm. he, he always pauses yeah for effect and then i took out uh, the applause because it ends up being about a 50 second clip so i mean there's there's mm. but other than that that's what he said and yeah hey. he he's convinced that they have the campaign that can win because they what iowa yeah, yeah. iowa is where he was able to Turn it. Turn it. Well, now, did the Ben Carson thing in Iowa where he, he, he right. put Love. out an email saying that Ben Carson was out? Oh, just kidding. He's not out. Did that help at all? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Trump is still bringing that up. 
he thinks that uh, Iowa should be recounted or something. Well, Ted is sleazy. I read yesterday, we talked about before how the Bush campaign was just befuddled by the fact that <laughs> Trump called them low energy and that label stuck and they couldn't get rid of it. Right. They tried all kinds right. of things and it just it, it was still there. He, Bush became low energy. That's yeah. his label. Now, the label for Cruz is liar. liar. And his campaign has admitted that that started to kind of hit mm-hmm. and hurt them. And it's becoming something that's it's being hard to shake as they're being catcalled. Oh, yes, you're a liar and that kind of stuff as people yell out. Well, can't you see like a a political cartoonist having a heyday of all of these candidates, you know, off screen trying to rip their labels off? Yeah. And they can't get the label off. Probably at this point, you could put a caricature of Ted Cruz and you could put liar (laughs) and people would probably see the liar and identify that as Ted Ted Cruz Cruz. more than seeing the face. You know what I mean? And we and he did the same thing to Bush. And so what's Rubio's? Oh, sweaty. That's what he calls him, sweaty. Yeah. Rubio's sweaty. I mean, that's wild. Oh, what happens when he gets to Hillary? Wow. Now you notice Hillary and uh, and the Burn had a had a big debate last night. Is that what they call it? Or was it a town hall? I think I it was a town know. hall. It was a town hall. But she's like, she she basically because they want her to show her transcripts from her speeches. And then she she came out with the line basically why why are we, why do I have to live by a double standard or why do I have to I can't remember her line but she's saying show me my, I'll show you mine if you show me yours so to speak when it comes to I the think transcripts it was different than that but that's what she's saying she goes I'll show you I'll I'll put out I'll show you my transcripts yeah. if Bernie yeah. Sanders you take all the speeches you have given and Bernie didn't and show me give those. many to the bank he gave industry. like but he gave three speeches and was paid two thousand dollars. Where she gave three speeches and was paid over a half a million. Half a million. Yeah. <laughs> um, isn't that crazy? So, yeah, this is going to be wild. This Buckle in, folks. Buckle in. Um, yeah, we should try to guess what Hillary's nickname will be from Trump. What will be has, her Hasn't label? he already used? Um, I don't know if anything's stuck. Yeah. I mean, low energy was great. Well, I'd hate to give him an idea. Well, yeah, but. He, what he's going to do, it's a, she's not trustworthy. That's what he's going to keep hitting her on. Yeah. But can you imagine the day he – because he'll say anything. He'll say what people think but won't ever dare say. Yeah. And, that's oh, yeah. Why, and that is a legit reason as people are saying they, this is why I vote for him. He's saying what he thinks. I, and then they follow up with, I don't agree with everything he says. <laughs> but uh, he says what he thinks and I like that. And, and what he usually will say. I, I'm not saying this but someone else has said – and then boom. Then you blast um, away. One of the things that uh, this is why we're, we're we're talking with Dr. Kenneth Wald today, because one of the age old you know wisdoms is that you couldn't become president of the United States without being a really strong, faithful Christian churchgoer. Well, apparently uh, things may be changing, folks. Um, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kenneth Wald, who uh, wrote the book Religion and Politics. By the way, seventh edition, I believe we're on. And he's going to be walking us through, because in South Carolina, all you heard about was religion. Yes. Everyone was looking religious in the South, right? And so we're going to be talking about the impact of religion on uh, the presidential election, the history of it, and and really what what does it look like going forward? Is it that big of a deal? Because some of the biggest issues, if you think about it, like the Donald ran even into the Pope for crying out loud. That's like the third rail of eternal politics. 
you don't mess with the Pope. Um, And he did. So we'll be talking about that with Dr. Kenneth Wald um, from Florida State, I believe, in just a few minutes. But uh, first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the world? Thanks, Matt. Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee decided in a closed-door meeting Tuesday that they would not hold hearings or vote on a President uh, Obama nomination nomination to the Supreme Court. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I believe the overwhelming view of the Republican Conference of the Senate in the Senate is that this vacancy should not be filled uh, by this lame duck president. There's some low energy right there. We believe we believe the American people need to decide who is going to make this appointment rather than a lame duck president. Senate Majority Whip John Cornyn from Texas said Senate, uh, Lin- Senator Lindsey Graham says the consensus among members is that the next president should pick the Supreme Court justice who replaces Antonin Scalia. The court's leading conservative justice who died earlier this month, Obama has vowed that he will pick a nominee. Well, yeah, it's not like Obama's going to be like, okay, boys, I'll just not pick one then. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> Next. It's great. Yeah. Uh, a tough day uh, turning into a rough night. Much of the deep south. Multiple tornadoes spotted on Tuesday, including a water spout near New Orleans. At least two deaths reported in an RV park in St. James Parish, Louisiana. About 100 RVs there were tossed around like toys, according to the manager who said that other people were seriously hurt. Another person was killed in Lamar County, Mississippi. According to emergency officials, as many as 10 million people in five states will be under tornado watches in the next 24 hours. The severe weather threat moves up the East Coast today from the Carolinas up to Washington, D.C. as the weather continues to... Crazy. uh, Makes you happy to live in the Rocky Mountains. Absolutely. I'm just going to say. U.S. health officials are investigating 14 cases of Zika virus being spread throughout uh, through sexual contact. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention announced on Tuesday that the 14 cases, two pregnant women are confirmed to have the virus. The agency alleges at this time that there is no evidence that women can spread the virus to their partners, but that men can be infected Hmm. through, like, mosquitoes and all that. So, Uh, The Washington Post reports the sale of breakfast cereals in the U.S. is down nearly 30% over the last 15 years. Part of that is a growing preference for things like smoothies and protein bars, according to the New York Times. But nearly 40% of millennials in a recent survey said eating cereal was, quote, inconvenient because they had to clean up after eating it. Wow. Yeah. And the fact that young people aren't eating cereal because, quote, bowls don't clean themselves should worry both cereal companies and anyone who has a stake in the country's future, according to the Post. It is a generational shift in how families raise their kids during even the most mundane of responsibilities like doing the dishes into uh, unthinkable nuisances, the Post asks. Point are pointing to a 2014 study that found that only 28 percent of parents make their kids do chores. What? Like 28% of parents make their kids do People chores. People aren't eating cereal because the bowl it's, doesn't wash itself. It's inconvenient to rinse the bowl out. Are you? That is the easiest meal there is. A Add spoon milk. and a bowl. I know people that that's the only, that's the only, you know, silverware or that's the only, what is it, like dish they had in the house was a cereal bowl. Yeah, but it's it's too much of a hassle now. Parents, you got to get your kids to rinse their bowl for crying out loud. They're going to die. They're going to die. It's going to kill the entire Midwest. That's where the cereal is coming from, folks. Uh, We will take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kenneth Wald about religion and politics in the United States. You know, the more um, you hear some of these candidates in the South and they're invoking God and and God's name. And uh, even Ted Cruz's father talked about how, you know, that's how Ted was called to become the president. Because they saw God's face. That's what made the deal. 
religion and politics, folks. How does it mix and what does it look like uh, going forward? We'll take a break, come back and talk to one of the nation's experts on the subject. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the news, you hear it all the time. Little, Just little stories that come out from the candidates. Um, and I mentioned them earlier. Uh, Donald and his uh, brief little run-in with the Pope. Um, his comment at a religious university where he talked about the, the Bible verse 2 Corinthians. Kind of showing his hand that maybe he's not as devout as some might think. And... Uh, Ted Cruz's father has said some things that seem a little extreme uh, religiously. But in, in the end, you know, religion and politics have been intertwined in our country's history uh, since the beginning. Um, but one of the things that they're finding out, many researchers have claimed that religious activity is declining, except a, poo, a Pew Research study stated that roughly three quarters of Americans, 77 percent, still identify with a religious group. And a growing number of people in both Republican and Democratic parties want their political leaders to publicly discuss their faith. So how influential is a candidate's religious affiliation in the election process, and how are we seeing it affect the election today? Remember, even the last cycle, presidential cycle, Mitt Romney, a Mormon, running, and was that going to be a big deal? Remember, that came out as a story for a while, all the way back to Ted Kennedy being a a, – uh, John Kennedy being a Catholic, and was that going to impact it? Well, joining us today is Dr. Kenneth Wald, a distinguished professor of political science and the Samuel R. Budd Shorstein Professor of American Jewish Culture and Society at the University of Florida. He's also uh, the author of the book Religion and Politics in the United States, which I believe is in its seventh um, its seventh edition. And so we welcome him here today, Dr. Kenneth Wald. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. Honestly, you uh, you hear about religion all the time. There's something. It, it's almost like you hear about it in Iowa. You you don't hear so much about it in New Hampshire, but then it really comes to a boil down in South Carolina. And when they start hitting the Bible Belt, talk about uh, the impact of religion and politics. Uh, you know, historically, How, where did it all start? How did it all play out? Well, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, of course a question that could uh, keep us going for quite a while. Let me, let me just observe that uh, both throughout the world and in the United States, uh, religion has long been entangled with politics uh, in a variety of ways. And uh, in the United States, of course, it was primarily uh, uh, something that we've had since the beginning because we are such a religiously diverse population. And, you know, religious identity is often a very important part of people's personal identity. And it's not surprising if people think of themselves in religious terms that uh, they would look at political issues from that perspective and that they would look at potential candidates for office from that perspective. Hmm. And the other way around, of course, candidates who want to win uh, ask themselves how they can appeal to groups of the electorate. And when you know people's religious identity is politically relevant, uh, it's pretty 
inevitable, I think, that you will go after those. So I think we get it both from individuals and from the perspective of, of the candidates as well. I mean, even in the um, Supreme Court, Justice Antonin Scalia's passing uh, and the need to now choose another Supreme Court justice, the religion again comes to the forefront because of you know abortion issues and uh, other issues that are going to be kind of you know coming before the court. It, it, it really, I guess, it is. It is. It's it's a major part of every of our identity. And then every one of these issues kind of becomes polarized. It almost seems because of the religious push. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You referred to the election of John Kennedy in 1960. Yeah. Uh, and for many people in my discipline of political science, um, that election actually kind of took their interest away from religion, because if a Catholic president, you know, a Catholic could be elected president in an overwhelmingly Protestant country, it suggested that religion was no longer very hmm. important. So it kind of went off the agenda. And uh, even when it was there, it wasn't really emphasized. So the civil rights movement, to give an example, uh, was very much a church-based movement, as we know. If we right. think of the leaders, they're all ministers, they're all pastors. If we think of the uh, young men who and women who sat in at lunch counters, they were recruited by churches. But nobody kind of saw it in that way. So I remember when I was in grad school uh, 40 years ago, uh, telling my my supervisor I was really interested in the role of religion in American politics, and he spent a good bit of time trying to talk me out of this, <laughs> saying there was nothing to study, uh, there was nobody who was There's nothing there. And yeah, I ended up doing a dissertation about Britain in the 19th century, because there I knew religion mattered, and then came back to the United States, and this is about the time the Christian right was emerging. And suddenly, uh, you know, there was so much of it mm-hmm. that uh, I've been able to have a career for the next 40 years. So. It's interesting because, yeah, I think they, they almost want it to keep fading, but it doesn't. I, I could sense, too, if, if Mitt Romney had, I guess, just being nominated may have had the same effect as a or a similar effect as John Kennedy that, oh, again, religion doesn't matter because <laughs> now a Mormon's in there when they, many didn't even see Mormons as Christians. But it seems like, too, this kind of ultra-conservative wing of the of the GOP, for example, um, is very much driven by religious ideology. Yeah, you've, you've got a particular strategic phenomenon that I think explains what you're hearing, and, and it's worth emphasizing. We're hearing most of this among the Republicans. We're mm-hmm. hearing relatively right. little among the Democrats. Right. Uh, and in some ways, in any other year, the Democrats would be the story, because you have, for the first time, uh, a Jewish that. candidate who some people think is competitive and yep. has won a primary, and that had never happened before. But that's basically not, not anybody's focus. You know, the, the Republican phenomenon is this. They began an effort in the late 1970s to um, uh, really change their base uh, and heavily appeal to evangelicals. This was the rise, again, of the movement called the Christian right. Uh, and over time, uh, they succeeded in, to the point that evangelical Protestants, white evangelical Protestants, and even more specifically, white Anglo evangelical Protestants, have become the electoral base of the Republican Party. They're the most loyal and the most committed voters uh, in the party. They're not a majority, but they are, you know, extremely important in the party. And in a sense, now what has happened is with social changes, that's no longer quite the advantage it was uh, in the 80s and, and in the 90s. And there's been a reaction against this movement. Um, and consequently, the Republican Party is in a very difficult place because, mm. you know, you've got candidates like Cruz who see evangelicals as their base, uh, pretty successfully has claimed them in competition with Ben Carson, but 
not certainly has not succeeded in getting the majority of their votes as we right. saw in South Carolina. Uh, but it's clearly it's something that 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 in a sense, uh, you know, if you want to win the nomination, you you know, you go with the voters who are most committed, who are most active, and most like to tur- likely to turn up, and those are much more you know, likely to be evangelicals than others. So, you know, if you don't appeal to them, you hurt your chances. But if you do appeal, you may have to take positions that really come to hurt you. Right. Uh, and that's kind of been the dilemma. And, and it really was a problem four years ago. And the Republican Party kind of tried to rebuild itself. But I don't know how you rebuild yourself when, you're ba- when your base is the problem. So. Yeah, your base is, is, the, yeah. is the issue. Is, yeah. um, we also hear in the GOP and the conservative uh, side of things, we hear uh, they invoke uh, Ronald Reagan – and you know, um, and, and his philosophies. But was Reagan was Reagan a religious person? Well, not in the conventional sense. Um, I mean, he respected religion, and he had no trouble talking about moral issues. But it was hard to see him as personally, you know, religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you've really got, I think, kind of three wings within the Republican Party right now. You've got the evangelicals. Um, you've got the libertarians. Uh, and they're sort of in uneasy uh, coexistence, particularly in the Tea Party. And then you've got what are broadly called, you know, moderate Republicans or Republicans who are typically fiscal conservatives, but not necessarily social conservatives. Mm. And the challenge right now is that, you know, the people who turn out disproportionately in primaries are the evangelicals and to some extent the libertarians. So that's where candidates have had to had to focus their their mm. message. Um, but it's a it's a real it's a real it's a coalition that is difficult now to pull together. In a way, this used to be the Democrats' problem. They had all these groups together: who, you know, urban workers, uh, ethnics, uh, white Southerners, African Americans, and it was very hard to sort of craft an appeal. But gradually, their coalition has shifted, and it's much more um, it's easier, I think, to find common ground. Republicans are having a very difficult time finding common ground, and that's what really what you're seeing in, yeah. these, in these debates. What do you see happening? With because um, the Democrats they do kind of they seem to stay out of the fray. It seems like they can maybe talk uh, religious values and beliefs, but they don't usually get into invoking God um, in their speeches and 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 that. But um, is it? But it's interesting to me because uh, Hispanic voters, which might tend to be uh, go with Democrats and um, Black voters, there, there tends to be a strong religious component to both of those. Groups, right? Yeah, it, it it has been something of an issue, particularly for Latino Protestants, uh, <clears throat> who, while not a majority, are a significant share of the Republican Party, um, and they're not simply the Cubans from my state of Florida. They're they're significant Latino Protestant communities around the country, uh, and they tend to be much more like evangelicals in their social values. But again, economically, that's often what drives their vote because, again, disproportionately, they tend to be working class and, and benefit from the kinds of social welfare policies <clears throat> Sorry, mm-hmm. that uh, Democrats have, have pursued. Um, the Democrats, you know, do have some diver- diversity. For example, they have a relatively large share of people who are not religiously affiliated, um, and they have a large share of people whose religion really manifests itself in a kind of a social gospel approach, um, where they see, you know, the prophetic tradition again, primarily in terms of, 
you know, treating people justly in the economy and criminal justice and so forth. And that's, you know, that's in a sense the, the position that you see in both um, Bernie Sanders uh, and Hillary Clinton. You know, they're, they, they, they will not talk a great detail about their faith mm. and they will not constantly invoke the Bible, but they will, they will often cite, you know, this sort of social justice emphasis is what's driving them. And that, that seems to work reasonably well for Democrats. Uh, now it seems to be a kind of a centrist position that appeals to most most voters in the constituency. Yeah, I guess that's it. So they're kind of more issue maybe oriented social justice issues, but they don't necessarily tie it to their religious values. Because I mean, also I also think of um, is isn't uh, a large voting group of of Jewish coalition also a part of the Democrats? I mean, it just seems interesting to me that that they're not more allied to a conservative. View, but really, I guess it's social issues that are pulling them more to the left. Well, I think I think it's it's the kind of we we have a problem with language. People talk about values, voters, and social issues as if these were only conservative kinds of positions, and these were only evangelicals. And and it's worth understanding there is a religious left um, which thinks of the Bible and the religious messages as relevant across a broad right. swath of issues. Uh, and they, they are responsive to those issues. They're not as numerous as people on the right. Uh, but they would argue that, you know, a, a religious issue would be how you treat, you know, Syrian refugees. And right. And seen evangelicals criticize the party, the Republican Party, for some of the things it said. So I think in, in that sense, the Democrats are more in tune with their constituency. And frankly, they're more in tune with what's happening among young people. Because, you know, while, the, while you can debate a lot, as you mentioned, about how secular a nation we're becoming, and in some senses, yes, in some senses, no. There's no question that young people are increasingly detached from organized religion, but are quite strongly mobilized on social justice arguments. So the kinds of things that the Democrats talk about uh, are, are very powerful. Um, and that's why you know, see a lot of young people at Sanders rallies and things mm. of that nature. And, and for Jews as well, this is really their primary political concern is, is questions of social justice. Uh, most American Jews, again, are, are you know, are, are are quite liberal. Yeah. Um, there are exceptions. There are the Orthodox. There are the re- the relatively recent Russian Jewish immigrants. But um, by and large, the bulk of the population is is looking for those broader issues. And they're also, and this is true of many on the Democratic side, many of the voters, they're uncomfortable with what they call God talk on yeah. the campaign. Uh, so when Ted Cruz, you know, you know, celebrates his victory in, in Iowa by saying, you know, all blessings be to God, and turns it into a prayer rally. It turns off a lot of Democratic voters because it seems to be, as my mother would have said, wearing religion on your huh. sleeve. Um, even so, faithful, so even believers are still turned off by it. Very, yeah. very, very much so, yeah. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, that works for evangelicals. Um, that's why Ted Cruz has mm-hmm. done better among them than any other voting group. He still hasn't captured them. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it is it is a powerful motif in the Republican Party, and and there are Republican candidates who are frankly uncomfortable with these kinds of displays. Uh, you know, you mentioned Mitt Romney four mm-hmm. years ago, John McCain eight years ago. Uh, these were people who clearly, I think, are, are religious and have have faith, but again, they're, they they see it as kind of inappropriate yeah. to talk about this in the public square. Ah, oh, that's interesting. And, and what a what a I mean, it shouldn't be such a great insight that you've brought us about. I mean, there's values, there's value uh, voters on every side of the issue. They just are interpreting what love is, what, you know, lifting another is uh, differently. I think it's powerful. 
Um, let's let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Kenneth Wald, and he is uh, the author of the book Religion and Politics in the United States uh, in its seventh edition now, and he's uh, one of the nation's experts in religion and politics and the impact um, of, of uh, religion in the political sphere. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. I want to get into uh, a little bit about what, what, you know, the religion or religious views um, and Donald Trump, how, how they're going to mesh together and uh, get some ideas from Kenneth Wald on that. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, you, you can't watch the political uh, positioning of all of these candidates without and he's sticking around, especially, I think, in the GOP side, without hearing the many, many issues that could come up um, that, that involve religion and a person's identity with religion, whether it's abortion, whether it's, uh, you know, we, we were talking about earlier about Syrian refugees coming in. And, I mean, even how you go about thinking about helping people that are fleeing from war, it, in some way, it's got to fall back on your value system. Um, but many times, too, especially you see it, I think, in the GOP, there's a lot of play around religion. And, and, and in fact, there was a, uh, um, some protesters tried to perform an exorcism on Ted Cruz. And one of the things he fired back – it was a weird scenario. Uh, some hecklers did – but he basically just fired back this one phrase that was that I think sums up some of the division we have in our world and in our country. He, if Ted fires back, usually lefties don't believe in God. And I'm sure the crowd roared and it was a great moment. Um, today joining us, though, is Dr. Kenneth Wald, who is, is an expert in studying um, religion and politics. He's a distinguished professor of political science from the University of Florida. He has written about the relationship of religion and politics in the United States, Great Britain, and Israel. His most recent books include Religion and Politics in the United States, The Politics of Cultural Differences. Um, really, he's, he's, got, he's got what we need, the skills and the information we need. So we're trying to pick his brain and learn as much as we can about how religion plays a role in our political process. Dr. Kenneth Wald, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. What do you think... Um, Going forward, I mean, it is you, – you made a great point that we have the first Jewish presidential uh, candidate that's uh, – I mean, not candidate, but um, that's succeeding and flourishing and very well could be the first Jewish president or nominee. We also have the first female. And then on the GOP side, we have Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and and Kasich and by the way, I'm sure you saw Kasich uh, have that moment with one of the members of his crowd that was crying, and uh, he hugged him. It was a beautiful moment, and even Kasich, uh, you know, invoked God and and basically shared his beliefs in God. Is is there? I guess is there history for this? Is there precedence of this? Was this going on a hundred years ago? Were we invoking God as much then in our in our presidential candidates? You know, I, I think if you look back to the early republic, 
um, <clears throat> from time to time, the religious background of the candidates became an issue. I'm not sure the candidates engaged in the degree of, again, what's called God talk that they do today. Uh, again, the, the predominant style of religiosity was different then, so I think that would have seemed a little unseemly. But, you know, there were certainly attacks on Thomas Jefferson um, where he was accused of being a an heretic and an infidel. Hmm. And, I mean, he really was very different than traditional Christians in that he considered Jesus not to be divine, and, and he rewrote the Bible to take out all the what he thought of the miracles. And this, the Jefferson Bible, as it was known, became a, a controversy uh, in his presidency. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, when he became president, because he was not a member of a formal denomination, uh, was often accused of being you know, uh, insufficiently religious or pious. But, but I don't think that was the major factor. And, and again, um, you know, there are times when religion has been more important. Uh, one goes back to, let's say, the turn of the uh, 20th century, 1896, when my uh, uh, fellow Nebraskan William Jennings Bryan uh, famously stood up before the Democratic Convention in his effort to promote uh, uh, going from the gold standard to the silver standard and, you know, said, you shall not press down upon, you know, my brow this crown of thorns. You know, you shall not crucify me on a cross of gold. Hmm. So you have certain candidates for whom this has been important. And, you know, Woodrow Wilson's uh, Presbyterianism was an important factor. And again, we've seen it with candidates and so forth. I think it's, you know, I don't know if it's more overt today or just because of the news cycle where we're hearing it more often. Uh, candidates are, I think, deciding it's good to be seen as religious in some way. Again, particularly if you're seeking the Republican nomination. Right. Uh, on the Democratic side, it has to be finessed a bit. But, um, uh, it, it's also, again, it's also been a problem. It, it has helped Republicans in primaries as individuals, but it has tended to hurt the party in the last set of general elections. And my guess is that if either Cruz, uh, if Cruz is nominated, that would certainly uh, continue to be the case. Uh, in Trump, I think it's a, it's a different set of issues. And in Rubio, I don't know. I think, again, they're also going to be different issues. But, uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, we're just more aware of it now. Can faking it become a problem? I mean, it, it seems like, uh, you know, it, it might hurt Donald if he keeps bringing up mm -hmm. two Corinthians. Yeah, there there are certainly, again, evangelicals who um, don't like candidates who, as they put it, haven't, you know, have tried to talk the talk without walking the walk. And there's a sort of sense of, of authenticity. There was a great example of this uh, some years ago when Tim Kaine was running for governor of Virginia. Uh, he was a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And when people ask him, you know, his position on capital punishment, he said, I'm against it uh, because my, my religion teaches me it's morally wrong. He's a, he's a Catholic. And people who knew Tim Kaine, who'd had years of experience uh, with him, knew that he was a very devout Catholic, that every summer he went and did good works in South America, that he was educated in, in Catholic schools. And, and, and so he was credible when he said this, and, and he won quite handily in that election in a state that has a lot of evangelicals. So he, he was seen as being authentic, and, hmm. and that, that worked. Uh, George W. Bush's rise to political power really in part came about because, again, he was familiar enough with evangelical, the evangelical world to be able to, you know, come across as, you know, authentically evangelical, even though he comes at it from a less evangelical denomination. So I think, yeah, I, I, think, I think the part of what's going to hurt Trump among some people is that he doesn't seem to be authentic. And it's not just, you know, between 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I think more broadly um, his talk is, is a problem. But there's something else I think is important, and that is that, evangelical leaders have pretty early on learned 
that they can live with a candidate who isn't an evangelical or isn't very religious, provided that candidate takes the right positions and wants to win the election. Right. Um, so I don't know that that's going to hurt Trump. Um, I heard Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, in his endorsement said, well, you know, we're not voting for our pastor-in-chief. We're voting for commander-in-chief. Um, now, that's not they're not entirely consistent about that because certainly part of the reason they went after Bill Clinton in the 90s was they felt he was immoral. But this time Trump pretty much gets a pass on his multiple <laughs> marriages and right. things of that nature. So yeah, so it, 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 it can be, it, it can seem fake and you have to know what you're talking about um, and speak in a way that does convey authenticity. Do you sense, um, I mean, I guess what might hurt him in a primary election, maybe his lack of religiosity may actually be an advantage in the general, uh, because Donald Trump's probably not going to be invoking God, you know, inappropriately, and maybe many Democrats might like that he's a little more neutral on that. Well, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I think there are just so many issues with Trump that the religion <laughs> one is just one small factor, right. you know, in the mix. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know if it will matter. I mean, I think if somebody asks him a question, uh, it's in his nature to answer and answer in a way that reflects his ego. Um, and, you know, he's the greatest physical shape of all time. He'll be the best jobs president. You know, <laughs> African-Americans love him. Yeah. You know, he's the best Christian he's there the is. Best. I mean, yes, it's just who he is. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he's his, you know, I, I think you need a large plane to fly him around because it has to be able to host his ego as well as him. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know that it's going to be a big factor among the many factors that are there. Do you think, just a guess, and we only have a few more minutes, but one of the big issues that has that's come up recently is religious liberties and um, with the with with the um, gay marriage initiatives being um, accepted and allowed, and the LGBT um, you know movement on on certain issues. It seems like. Uh, religious liberty is is a big issue where will religion still be able to exercise their conscience and not be forced to do marriages and stuff? Do you sense going forward that a candidate or a president will matter in that argument? Well, I think um, you're right to identify this claim of individuals to be exempt from public law on grounds of religious conscience. That, that has been an issue. It's not a new issue. It's taken on additional power since, uh, again, the Supreme Court uh, struck down limits on gay marriage. But, you know, we used to have issues about, you know, pharmacists refusing to dispense right. uh, birth control to unmarried women or people who specialize in in vitro fertilization refusing to provide their services to unmarried women and things of this nature. And again, claiming a sort of conscience clause. Um, it will matter, I think, only in who comes before the Supreme Court. Um, but the peculiar thing about that is it's not the usual alignment, because um, the most decisive blow against a religious liberty argument as an exception to general laws was actually written by the late Justice Scalia. Who, oh, wow. You know, his conservative credentials yeah. uh, don't need any, uh, any repetition right. here. Um, in Employment Division v. Smith, he basically said that, you know, I'm sorry, um, you know, if the state has a rational basis for passing a law, there's no basis for exempting people on religious grounds um, unless there is specific provision made for this. There's no constitutional obligation. So the issue is not necessarily a simple one as far as that goes. Right. But again, the president's important, I think, would only be in terms of the Supreme Court vacancy that we have now and the ones that are, that are coming up. Yeah. Wow, it's it is it's such a deep issue, isn't it, uh, Doctor Wald? Because it'll it just it's every part of every decision of every 
of every view. A lot of the tension in the country could, I think, even be tied to this this religious and political debate. Um, as we, what would you say? Uh, just as we wrap up, what's what should we do? Just as ev- the average person, our own belief system, our own religious value system. Any ideas on what we should do to just to to balance our own views, the views of others, and our own political persuasion? Well, yeah, these are these are tough decisions to make, and so I'll, I'll make a general argument that would incorporate that. Um, one of the questions I always like to ask people when we get into political discussions is, you know, why do we have elections? You know, why why do we vote? And for a lot of people, it's a matter of of what I call, you know, uh, personal expressiveness. You know, I want to feel good. I want to send a message. I want to say something. And while I certainly understand that, it seems to me that the purpose of elections is to choose people who can manage the government. Now, their values matter, understanding the policies they're going to pursue matters, and, and certainly one hopes they'll pursue values that are consistent with, you know, the individual voters' uh, uh, personal values. But as I think everybody said, our sacred scriptures are not political textbooks in the narrow sense. They don't say that, um, you know, they, they may make statements about preferred sexuality, but even there they don't address gay marriage, they don't address um, specific cases of refugees beyond the general advice to you know, respect the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt, that sort of thing. So I think it, 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 I would be very cautious of candidates who draw straight lines between particular passages of sacred scripture and their political positions. But I would also, you know, go back to the question, you know, you're choosing somebody who's going to manage the government and sending a message and, and so forth is, of, is, is, to my mind, is, is, a, is a lesser purpose. That's mm. not really why we should vote. Um, and I know that's a very sort of uh, unpopular yeah. thing to say, but it's, you know, no, but, uh, ultimately after, there's going to be a government after the election. That's right. It matters who's going, to, who's going to be running it and setting the priorities. Yeah, and maybe go find another way to express your personal position. Yeah, as, as my father always liked to say about movies he didn't like, if you want to send a message, go to Western Union. So. There you go. <laughs> send a message. <laughs> or go to go to, that's right. Now you just can get on the internet and go right. to a chat room. Right. Dr. Kenneth Wald, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for your uh, your insight on this. Okay, Matt. It was a pleasure to be with you. You bet. Take care. Great stuff. Um, and what an interesting point, really. Uh, do, you want a, do you want somebody that can manage your government and go make your own expression of values and beliefs uh, in another way. We don't always have to mix it, and everything doesn't have to be a stand for something. Um, Obviously, there's a time and a place for some. Um, Is this the time and the place? And if you have to make your stand at the expense of everyone else, maybe uh, it's not a great stand. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. Wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, It's politics, folks, and it's religion, and you can have your religious views, and you don't have to get sucked into uh, a political debate about, you know, extremist ideas and hating of other people. Mark Twain has a quote that says, Never argue with stupid people. They will drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. And that might uh, – nothing could be truer than in the political world. Again, you can have your beliefs, and I honor that. I love that. 
and simultaneously we can still honor and respect others and others' rights to have their own views, their own values. Um, Powerful stuff, folks. We'll take a break and come back. That's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Go check us out on uh, on, uh, iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Three hours of utopia. Is that what you call it? That's what I call it. For the rest of you, it's just grueling. <laughs> no, it's three hours of solutions, tools, information. Uh, hopefully, every once in a while, a little insight. I mean, it's happened. It's happened. Usually and, for criminals more than yeah, everybody else. So. We always try to give a leg up to the criminal element. It's, I think it's a group of people that we don't pay enough attention to. Neglected? Yeah. They're neglected. They just there's so many great stories we try to help uh, these poor poor criminals with. Uh, by the way, today is February 24th. It's Inconvenience Yourself Day, um, and which is a, a, a great day. The concept may have originated from Miss Julie Thompson, and it was meant to serve as an incentive for others to acknowledge their appreciation for acquaintances or strangers, and to promote a respectful attitude and attentive demeanor. It may have. May have. They picked one person that was inconvenienced, mm-hmm. and she made the day. Wow. I think we can all have a moment where we were inconvenienced. For someone else. Why would you want to remember being inconvenienced? Well, well but, I know she has a positive spin. There's a positive spin. Well, but, but it's not an inconvenience. If I could open the door for a, a, a lady or a man, that's a, it, sure, it slows me down. But I, I want to do that for you today. I don't know if that's an inconvenience. I think that's being nice. Well, have you ever done that where you then end up holding the door for about 400 people? That's inconvenient. Yeah. I got to Okay. I got to Oh. (laughs) Can you hold the door? It's hard. Or giving up a seat for a pregnant lady. I mean, how many times? Are we even supposed to do that anymore? Good question. I don't really do it for the person. I just feel bad if I don't do it. You do it so you don't go down to H-E double hockey sticks. Yeah. Like. If I, if I see someone that way, I'll stand up and just walk away. I won't look at them and go, oh, please. I've had right? s- so I don't indicate you need this yeah, seat. Yeah. I just stand up and leave, and then they can make a choice. Then you but what if then some big, burly, hairy dude sits in the seat? Then hopefully everyone around that person shames that guy. Yeah, that's, that's some motivation for me, too. <laughs> yeah. I, sometimes you say, would you like this seat in your head, hoping, oh, please say no, because my legs are killing me. But where did this all go? It should have been that, you know, please take my seat. No, I insist. I went to a private school where they made you stand up when a teacher entered the room. You'd stand. Hmm. It's great. You felt like you were, you felt chivalrous. You felt like you were wonderful. In my school, when the teacher walked in, we all went, oh, man. Uh, you? 
Again? <laughs> that is so sad. Inconvenience yourself today. So today, go out of your way to do something nice for somebody else, even if it's an inconvenience. Not you, Ben. You inconvenience plenty. You're fine today. People should, like, inconvenience themselves for me is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. It's also National Tortilla Chip Day. Mm. Mm. It's a good day. It's a great day. As I was reading that, it said, most uh, tortilla chips are consumed with salsa. I went, thank you. <laughs> Did not know that. Interesting. <laughs> I, I would think <laughs> nice cheese. Nice fact. I would think there'd be more cheese No, that's a salsa. different day. That's National Nacho Day. Uh-huh. So not, they, not my day? They pulled back. Did you say it's not my day? No, nacho. Yeah, not mine. Fine, go on. Okay. We're stuck. Go Which on. is a perfect segue to our <laughs> guest. Uh, in just a few minutes, we'll be speaking with Stephen Pinker, who is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He's going to be talk about, talking about grammar rules. I break tons of grammar rules. So he's here probably to shame me. He's really going to teach us. It's it's interesting. Just the stuff you forgot. Do you speak differently than you write? Oh yeah. Except I, when I write, I'm I speak. I write what I speak. When I was in high school, my an English teacher when I was a senior grabbed my parents on on parent teacher night. And you're, he goes, your son writes in complete sentences. He uses punctuation. And they looked at him like, oh, okay. Like is that is that is that is, is that, that what you yeah, want? That's what we're looking for. Apparently, the rest of the class, it, when they wrote like a one-page essay, mm-hmm. the entire page was one sentence. Yeah, and inst- he said there were things like when when you'd write the word "have to," mm-hmm. have to H A F T T O instead of "have to." They didn't know that "have to" was the proper way to write that. <laughs> that "have to" is the improper way to say it. I yeah. Guess. And and it was just things like that. They would write the way they spoke, and that blew the teacher's mind. These are seniors in high school. They still right. don't understand this. <laughs> See, there's and, and but that's something's happening with our youth because now they have spell check, the, and grammar check. Basically, they'll do your grammar for you. Yeah. Uh, the the moment though that's horrible is when your like word program comes up and it says you know how it highlights it because there's something wrong with the sentence, and then it'll say something like uh, fragment sentence or something yes or and gives they, you a different option well, on how to write it that's great if it gives you another option but if yeah. it doesn't then you're like well now what yeah it's wrong and i don't have a clue what to do with it um anyway so we'll be talking to steven pinker about this article he wrote it's a fascinating article called the sense of style the thinking person's guide to writing in the 21st century interesting stuff uh, he's going to go through a bunch of rules that we can break or do break and some that you just shouldn't be breaking. I, for example, lay, laid, lie, I still can't get those right. Mm. I've, I, I study it about every three months. I can't <laughs> To this moment, I can't remember the difference. Do you lay it down? Do you lie it down? You lay it down. Do you? Feels right. <laughs> it feels good. <laughs> can we go with our feels? Yeah. Is that how we're supposed to I do everything check by feeling. Okay. I don't feel like it. So we'll get into that in a few minutes. Did you hear about this Amazon zombie deal? Yes. Amazon.com would like you to know that there are some very strict rules about how you can use its new video game software. Unless there are zombies around. The company recently released Lumberyard, a free-to-use platform for video game development. (laughs) 
Okay, that's supposed to be zombies. Is that what a zombie sounds like? I don't know. It sounds... Well, one of those zombies has a deviated septum. Yeah, somebody somebody needs a lozenge. <laughs> yeah, wow. this just sounds like my, my five boys when we all sit down after a big meal yeah. to watch a game. It doesn't sound scary at all. But let's let's do away with that. It doesn't sound scary. The company recently released Yum- Lumberyard, a free-to-use platform for video game development that's linked to Amazon Web Services, cloud platform, Amazon. So it's, so it's a system that people can go in and design their own games. There you go. And But the rules are... Um, they there's have rules a, of use. There's a zombie clause. Well, there always should be. There should be. They included one. One, be- well, they know their audience. Go. This restriction will not apply in the event of an occurrence. Certified by the United States Center for Disease Control, if or whatever body succeeds that body, if there is a real zombie apocalypse. <laughs> so, anyway, um, so the clause basically just says, um, in the event that there is an occurrence of a widespread viral infection transmitted via bites or contact with bodily fluids that causes human corpses to reanimate and seek to consume living flesh, blood, brain, or nerve tissue and is likely to result in the fall of organized civilization. What? What's the rule? But that's a clause. There's a restriction will not apply to how you use the platform. You can do anything you want with the platform if a zombie apocalypse happens. Yes, so there's a bunch of rules on things you can and can't do with the software. They don't want you to make it so it does something nefarious. or something. They want you to use it to make a video game. But in the event of the fall of civilization because of a zombie apocalypse, you can use this software for whatever you want. If you need to know what a zombie apocalypse is, it's it's contracted through a bite or... Contact with... Bodily fluids. From a zombie. But it also has to cause a human corpse to reanimate, come back to life, I guess. Yes. And seek to consume living flesh, blood, brain, nerve tissue. It must have that. What if it comes back to life and it's not trying to consume blood, nerve, stuff, tissue? It's just trying to come back and it just wants to play video games. Then don't use this software. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In, a, in a way other than what they're describing in there. This is in the, the rules of, of use that you sign as your terms of use services. This is you why know. you it's need to read your terms of use and terms yeah. of service because you, you could have one of these problems. The interesting thing is that Amazon is promoting this creativity uh-huh. as they put this software out there because it gives you like the entire base level software that you need to build upon to create a video game where uh-huh. it's like the hardest part of creating yeah, a video game. It's having the, the base, the so system. Here, here you have the system. Here you have your And form, they're handing it to people. And they're just – it's open source. Go for it. But don't use it for these other reasons and then they toss in the zombie apocalypse. But this is, is brilliant because all these creative people that didn't have the resources to do this can now create it. Um, I, I'm glad they put in the zombie clause. Right. It, 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 I think it's a given – yeah. Because if if civilization falls, then no one's going to be there to enforce the terms of services. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's, at least it's there. It's in writing. It, it, I mean, a lot of lesser attorneys would not see the need for the zombie no. clause. Wow. We've come a long way. <laughs> this is pathetic. Yeah. But it's cute. I guess it's cute. That's it's funny. super cute. Um, and zombies, I, I again, I, I've never understood the zombie movement. It's more of a, a dragging of, of one leg and kind yeah. of a hobbling. Is that because that so people when they were hearing those noises they should have visualized, you know, someone dragging sh- a shuffling leg. and uh-huh. covered in dirt because you know you were dead. You were dead. Now you're not dead. Now you're out. I don't know. It's all weird. 
It's interesting stuff. Um, well, I'm hoping there's other headlines and news. Let's go to Terry and find out if there's anything else going on around the world. Thanks, Matt. With Donald Trump's runaway win in Nevada in the books, the Republicans now turn their attention to the 13 Super Tuesday states. We love Nevada. We love Nevada. Thank you. A couple of months ago, we weren't expected to win this one. You know that, right? Of course, if you listen to the pundits, we weren't expected to win too much, and now we're winning, winning, winning. And soon the country is going to start winning, winning, winning. Many of the current polls in Super Tuesday states are out of date. Taking that into account, Real Clear Politics currently shows Trump leading in Alabama, Alaska, Georgia, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Wow. Senator Ted Cruz beats Trump in only two states, Arkansas and his home turf of Texas. He just got the uh, the uh, the governor of Texas just put his support behind Ted Cruz. Wyoming and Colorado are also Super Tuesday states, but their most recent polls are from over a month ago. So they're kind of out of date. What the polls do show is that Marco Rubio will be fighting to make any headway in all 13 states. Super Tuesday is a campaign maker or breaker. So while the outcome is still uncertain, it's entirely consequential Hmm. very important super tuesdays march 1st get ready next week 13 states the democrats are currently in south carolina hillary and bernie hillary clinton and bernie sanders preparing for the south carolina democratic primary on saturday she is not the inevitable candidate now i think we've got a real shot to win it and what i would ask of the media is not to look at it state by state we're going to win some states we're going to lose some states It is necessary to get 2,400 delegates. We're going to have good days. We're going to have bad days. Secretary Clinton will have good days and bad days. Uh, But let's kind of look at the long-term thing. Secretary Clinton leads 57% to Senator Sanders, 33% in Mm. South Carolina currently. So Look at the whole picture. The whole picture. Don't go state by state. That's not how you look at a picture. It's interesting. A federal judge determined on Tuesday that Hillary Clinton's aides will be questioned under oath about using a private email server during Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State. A State Department official said they were reviewing the order, which would also put officials from the department on the stand as well. U.S. District Judge Emmett G. Sullivan said in April or set an April deadline for the parties involved to provide a plan to address the use of the server, so that issue is not going mm. away. Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have officially declared they will not hold a hearing on anyone President Obama nominates for the Supreme Court. In a letter out on Tuesday, signed by all 11 Republicans on the 20 member committee, the members tell their Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky that they will not hold hearings on the Supreme Court nominee until after our next president is sworn in on January 20th of 2017. Hmm. They we're not going to do it. They're they're standing their ground. And then the Democrats are crying out, saying this is this is uh, unprecedented. This is you're you're not doing your job. And then the Republicans point to the fact that you guys did this in 2008. And yeah, Joe or Biden, Joe Biden said something way back in the day. And then someone looked at that video, and ten minutes into that uh, speech, he said something else. Uh, whatever. Politicians. It's all politics. Unless your income is over $1 million, the likelihood that you will get audited by the Internal Revenue Service is falling. Less than 1% of individual returns were audited by the IRS last year, the lowest rate in a decade, according to the Wall Street Journal. But as the overall rate of audits has declined, millionaires are increasingly likely to get a call from the 
IRS. Nearly 10% of those with an income above $1 million were audited last year. It's a sign the IRS increased scrutiny over high earners as the service audited only 7.5% of the same income bracket in 2014. After adjusting for inflation, the IRS budget has been cut by nearly one-fifth since 2010, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. With those budget cuts, the IRS enforcement staff has fallen to its lowest levels in a decade. Well, many would celebrate that. I tossed that in because I got my refund yesterday. Attaboy. Taxes are done. Well, I love the IRS. I love everything they're doing. (laughs) And I wish nothing but the best for all of them. Dr. Matt Townsend. You're you're wonderful. We love you all. Our our listenership just plummeted. (laughs) I say that out of pure respect for the IRS and all of its auditors. Wonderful people. And I love you. Just trying to keep it real, folks, and out of court. Uh, we will take a break. When we come back, Dr. Steven Pinker will be joining us. He's the uh, author of the article, 10 Grammar Rules, It's Okay to Break Sometimes. See, this is where it gets me because we have the rules, and I always have them in the back of my head, and I violate them all the time. So just so you know out there in listener land, I know I'm blowing grammar up. But uh, we'll be talking with a true blue expert, professor from Harvard, who's going to walk us through uh, the power of our own grammar, the the ins, the outs, and, uh, you know, some of the rules that we need to pay attention to. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, get the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Do you commit word crimes? Man, it's, I think it's a travesty to have our next guest introduced by Weird Al Yankovic. Really? <laughs> our, our next guest knows grammar inside and out, um, and we're honored to have him on the show. He's the author of The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century, and his name is Steven Pinker. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, and he conducts research on language and cognition, um, also writes for publications like The New York Times and The Atlantic. Uh, we found an article in TheGuardian.com titled 10 Grammar Rules, It's Okay to Break Sometimes. Uh, professor Steven Pinker, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Honored to have you. I'm sure you're, very rarely are you introduced by the music of Weird Al Yankovic. It's an honor. <laughs> I can tell. It's uh, one of the things, Professor Pinker, because I, I, I speak a lot, I, but my, my grammar is horrible. And it feels like I get away with it because I just push through with personality, but I violate a lot of rules. Ta- tell me why it matters, because you're, you're a professor of psychology too, right? And so why does it matter about the grammar if our personality pushes us through? Uh, indeed, and you have not violated a single grammatical rule in our conversation. Not yet. Uh, Give me a minute. <laughs> well, you know, people are there, there are two senses of grammatical rule. There's the kind of grammatical rule that we um, all uh, obey without even thinking about it. That's how we have a conversation. If you ever try to uh, com- uh, uh, communicate with a computer, if you ever use Google Translate, right. see, the computers are horrible at using yeah. grammar. They're, um, you just know you're dealing with a machine and not a human being. There's a, a few rules that actually are not really part of a natural English language. They're part of the, the special form that we use in writing in formal settings. Mm. 
And even a lot of those are really bogus rules. Hmm. The idea that you should not split an infinitive, for example, that Captain Kirk made an error when he said to boldly go where no man has gone before. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, school teachers and editors and people who write irate letters to the editor who insist that that's a grammatical error. But actually, if you look at the history of the English language, if you look at the logic of the English language, it's not an error. Just, and there are a lot of bogus rules that people say are errors that actually aren't. Yeah. There are, there are, people do make errors in writing. It's not that you can write however you please, at least not if you want to uh, show readers that you care about what you write. Uh, but um, it's important to distinguish the genuine rules from the, the bogus ones. And our speaking language, I guess, it's, it's, is it different than the written? Absolutely. And in fact, there's not just one written form of the language, but there are several. The, the uh, language that you use in a text message or an email really should not be the same language that you use if you're delivering a sermon or, uh, or writing a, an impassioned editorial in the paper. Uh, there are different uh, degrees of formality, and it's an error to write in perfectly well-formed, long sentences in a text message. It's also an error to leave out words and, and um, not care about the proper plurals if you're writing a, a newspaper article. So, so sure. a lot of skill in language is knowing who you're writing for and what is the forum. Do you, do you sense that uh, as technology is advancing and we now have all the spell checks and the grammar checks and language checks, is it is it strengthening us? Is it making us weaker? Uh, I, I think it's uh, kind of the same. That in every era, you see people who are moaning about the decline of the language. Uh, back in the uh, you know the 1920s, they were saying if current trends continue with people listening to the radio then uh, by 1965, we're all going to be grunting like Tarzan. <laughs> sure. uh, and you go back, and they're saying that in 1890, and they're saying that in you know, 1780. <laughs> uh, so the language is not uh, deteriorating because people have to communicate, and people, uh, at least in, in certain forums, uh, really enjoy well-crafted English. Uh, at the true. same time, there's, uh, there are hundreds of millions of English speakers, and a lot of them are going to uh, be sloppy. A lot of them are going to use uh, uh, slang and dialects that aren't part of the standard. But the English language survived uh, survived for um, more than a thousand years, and it'll it'll still survive. It'll still survive. In fact, one of the things that came up recently politically here is uh, Donald Trump's you know level of of speaking. I guess he speaks at like a seventh or eighth grade level. Well, I did. I did not see that. Yeah, and uh, po- politicians uh, uh, often will uh, simplify their language to broaden their appeal, like, like George Bush. Uh, that's right. He uh, even made up some language to broaden his appeal. Uh, yeah, indeed, uh, he um, uh, and and he he talked about citizens of Greece being Grecians. <laughs> he talked about uh, policies that uh, vulcanize our country instead of balkanize our country. <laughs> Uh, and he yeah. himself conceded that he right. up. He gave a self-deprecating speech in which he made fun of himself for all of his errors. And yet he was still elected. I guess that's part of it. Is, I mean, we're all human, and most people aren't paying attention to the minutia, to the detail. I mean, th- you can make big mistakes, like some of those. Yeah. Uh, although we, we have had a number of presidents even recently who have been quite articulate. Bill yeah. Clinton was, uh, was uh, I mean, he was even called Slick Willie. He'd maybe a little too articulate. Right. Uh, Barack Obama, he, he takes pains to uh, simplify his language, but it's certainly um, grammatically well-formed and articulate, and he's been praised for that. 
you know, at the same time, um, I use an example in, my, in the stanza style that comes from President Obama, where he said, no American should be under a cloud of suspicion because of what they look like or the, because of the color of their skin. Now, there's some purists who would say that that's a grammatical error, that no American is singular. What they look like is plural. plural. Uh, but that's one of those bogus rules. People have been using they to refer generically to uh, any individual for hundreds of years, including some of the greatest writers of the English language, like Jane Austen. Hmm. So I use that as an example of uh, how, how some things that people insist are ungrammatical are actually uh, perfectly fine. Give us, give us some more examples of, of you know, maybe areas that we might get caught up or we, we might be making mistakes we don't even know about. Yeah, there are. Uh, there, if you try to use a fancy word that you think is a synonym for a, uh, a plainer word, you'll often uh, embarrass yourself. If you uh, talk about, if you thank someone for their uh, fulsome praise, uh, fulsome does not mean full. Uh, it does not mean lavish or plentiful. What it means is insincere or, or, or trying to, or, you know, oily, yeah. trying to flatter. Yeah. So that, uh, likewise, if you want to. Uh, compliment someone on their elegant, uh, simple plan. Uh, don't call it simplistic. Simplistic is an insult. It's not a compliment. Interesting, uh, yeah. And those are cases, they're avoidable because uh, it, they often come about when someone tries to sound highfalutin, but they don't really know what a word means. And they hear it, it, a, a fancy, what they think is a synonym for a plain word, and they say, oh, I'm going to sound fancy schmancy. I'm going to use the big word instead of the little word. That's usually a mistake. Or at least when in doubt, go to the dictionary. Uh, they, a lot of them are available as apps or online. There's no excuse not to just check a dictionary. I'm a big fan of dictionaries. Well, and I guess that's helped me because that seems like a great way to just grow your I mean it's almost like you need these experiences we, we need a buzzer to go off when we do it wrong so we <laughs> realize we just said it wrong I, I used to say irregardless oh yes that's one of the it's, the, the, the purists always get up and arm oh, over and I heard about it they, yeah and yeah they say it's not a word it actually is a word but it's a word that people frown on so don't use it <laughs> don't use irregardless and say you just say regardless right yeah it's a blend of irrespective and regardless but irregardless is, first of all, it's one negation too many. Yeah, that's uh, right. it means without regard, well, that's regardless. Well, so that is regard. <laughs> irregardless, it's, it doesn't, doesn't even make any sense. Oh, my uh, heavens. But, but, yeah, you're best advised not, not, not to use that word. But language is power, and it also, I mean, it tells you a lot. Um, but I, I kind of have learned going through graduate programs that I, I get better every time I focus on it. How, how do you sense that we... We do that um, in today's day and age. I mean, do I do I have to make it a practice of my life to read the dictionary regularly? Uh, no, uh, I, I think it's only the, the the biggest word nerds will kind of right. sit down in a, in a sofa and, and prop a dictionary up on their lap for for amusement. But it's something that you can go to when in doubt, uh, and and it's easier than ever. You don't have to balance a huge tome on your lap because they are available as uh, apps like the American Heritage Dictionary. Um, and also just to enjoy what you read, especially when uh, something tickles you. When you, you read an article in, in, in Time magazine or in um, uh, a, a clever movie review on a website, even a clever product review on Amazon, and you think to yourself, why did I just enjoy that sentence? Why is that so clear? And if you just sort of allow yourself to think about language and, uh, so that you see what makes it work and what makes it uh, doesn't not work, and likewise, when you write, um, 
the, the, the problem with most writing isn't that it has grammatical errors. It's that it's incomprehensible. Mm. You, you know, try to fill out a tax form. You, um, uh, you, you read a, uh, a paper written by a student. And you, just, you read an academic or a journal article. I shouldn't blame the students. And you can't make head or tail of it because the person writing it just didn't bother to think, hey, am I being clear? Can I expect a person who isn't me to understand my words. And all too often, people don't do that. You have forms to fill out, and you just don't know what they're talking about. Mm, so, so true. A lot of, it, a lot of uh, what we need to do to improve writing is simply to just step back and say, hey, have I been clear? That is, after you write it, it's, and writing is really hard, it's hard enough to get your ideas down on paper. Uh, the thought that you could get your ideas down on paper and be clear, uh, that's superhuman. So what you have to do is get your ideas down, then take a second look at it and, and ask yourself, would, a, uh, would someone else understand what I just wrote? It, does each sentence work? Do the subjects agree with the verbs? Uh, do, and, and this is not something where you actually need a whole lot of grammar to do it. You just read it to yourself and say, hey, does that sentence sound right to me? Mm-hmm. And if you just make the task of writing well part of your uh, checklist, uh, and not just write something and then fire it off, that will go a long way to uh, making writing better. It really is. I guess it's intentionality. Is that a word? Intentionality? Intentionality is a word. Bing! Uh, is it, because to me, it's, it's like you're saying, stop and read what you just wrote. Think about your audience. Are they going to get it? Is it clear? Even better, show it to someone else. There you go. Because a lot of times what's obvious to you is not obvious to anyone else. And <laughs> so each of us has a kind of blind spot. We, yeah. uh, uh, Of course it's clear. I just wrote it. I, I know what I just said. Well, yeah, of course you know what you just said. <laughs> you know what you meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really important to run it by someone else, and you'll often be shocked uh, at what you think is obvious that no one else finds obvious. What's getting through. Excellent stuff. Let's take a a break. We're speaking with Professor Steve Pinker um, from the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He's the author of the book, The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. He's giving us some uh, grammar rules, um, you know, some that are okay to break. And, And he's helping us maybe take the edge off This is about communication. It's about getting your message across to others. And in the end, um, you know, it can help. It can help. You don't have to stress. Just learn. We'll take a break, folks. Come back more with Professor Pinker on uh, really the true sense of style. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Joining us on the phone is Professor Steven Pinker. He's the author of the book, The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. And he joins us now live from Boston. Uh, Professor Pinker, thank you. This is, uh, it's enlightening for me. I've written a book. I've written a dissertation, a master's thesis. But there's something that makes me... um, very vulnerable when I write because people, they get to know you through your writing. They get to know you through your words. That is true. And I I give three reasons why people should care about writing. Uh, One of them is that you are uh, broadcasting your degree of care in what you write. Uh, No one can verify the truth of everything that you say. They've got to trust you. And uh, they will make judgments based on how much care you put into crafting the sentences that how much care
care you put into everything else, all the thoughts or research or, or uh, thinking behind the, the sentences. Mm. And so by taking care to write um, accurately and gracefully and grammatically, you're, you're um, advertising that you care about what you write. Um, the second is just clarity. We mentioned before that people waste huge amounts of time trying to decipher badly uh, written documents, whether they're uh, government forms or uh, uh, instructions on how to program your, your digital alarm clock or uh, academic articles. Um, the amount of waste and error that uh, could be avoided if people thought to write clearly is uh, enormous. And finally, uh, good writing is, uh, is a source of pleasure. It, it, it's a form of beauty. It adds to uh, the enjoyment that we experience every day. And uh, anyone who uh, takes pleasure from reading will appreciate the little bit of extra care that goes into a well-crafted sentence or a witty remark or a, an aptly chosen metaphor. So does, those are the three reasons. Do, I, I think it's so, it's so true. Do, do, um, does your writing influence your thinking? I mean, with me, by writing it and simplifying it and having to, like, cut out, you know, uh, a prepositional phrase here and there, and it it seems to kind of solidify the meaning for me. Uh, It does, because often uh, words are are more precise than the initial thought that led you to choose the word, and then when you say, well, which which of these do I really mean? Then you suddenly realize, gee, I don't know, I haven't really thought this through carefully enough. And that's why, uh, I mean, one of the reasons that students are are, are forced to write uh, term papers is to get them into the habit of thinking clearly enough about uh, ideas, uh, which you have to do when you write them down, uh, to, that they'll get, get in the habit of thinking more clearly in the future. Mm. Do you, um, I mean, you're at Harvard, you see, I'm sure, all sorts of writing now. I sure, I sure do, yes. And I mean, and that's a great uh, institution. Some of, the, some of the worst of it, by the way, is from my fellow professors. Oh, is it true? Is that I'm true? I'm not going to say anything bad about the students. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the professors that are often the worst writers. And, and does that say, what does that say about them? Just maybe that they, their care is down or their their thinking isn't solid? What would it say about fellow a, professors? A couple. There, there's, some, there's a common accusation that there are some people who deliberately uh, write in obscure language to prove how sophisticated they are. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they try to kind of bamboozle their audiences with uh, highfalutin gobbledygook. <laughs> and, and I think that there's some people that do that, but I don't think that's the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem is something that I call the curse of knowledge. Namely, when you know something, it's very hard to imagine what it's like for someone else not to know it. It just becomes such second nature that you don't even feel you have to spell it out. It's like it's in front of your, uh, your mind's eye, so it's per- clear as day, you don't realize that people who haven't lived the life that you've lived uh, just may not know what you're talking about. Right. Um, and to get people to step outside their own skin, to see the world through uh, other, someone else's point of view, uh, that's one of the chief skills in writing. And because academics get so specialized, or government bureaucrats or corporate hacks, uh, anyone who becomes um, more and more deeply immersed in their, their, little, their little peer group the little circle of people who communicate with each other, are likely to forget that people outside that little circle don't know their jargon yeah. or uh, can't visualize what they're talking about. And so the uh, urge to be concrete, to describe it in a way that anyone can see it. Don't talk about uh, you know, uh, uh, wildlife mitigation measures. Talk okay. about trapping birds. Uh, you know, don't, don't talk about uh, uh, verification of the veracity of a sentence. Say the word true and false. Uh, be so concrete. true. Allow people to see what you are seeing. 
is and this is true too because now we not just have we don't just have the the uh, Webster's dictionary and all these great dictionaries we now have the urban dictionary where we now we need to know all of the street slang all of the we need to know all the emoticon talk uh and right. language that we're seeing on our texting i mean it's almost i don't know if it's actually we're getting more words than normal i don't know but i don't know who to pay deference to and who to res- who to respect do i respect the academic view the haughty high-headed high-minded or the street people yeah well there's there's always been slang it bubbles up from um uh, from sports, from music, from uh, business, from um, uh, people hanging out on the street, and uh, most of it will is ephemeral. It'll uh, it'll come and go. Just, uh, but occasionally, um, words that are, are are thought of as slang when they first arise will earn a place in the language. So you know, I I, I was a kid in the '60s, and there were terms like you know, rip off and uh, freak out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and rap that were at the time the older people said, "Oh my God, what are the young kids doing to the language?" But now ripoff has uh, become a perfectly acceptable part of the language. It's a little casual, right? Right. Uh, but but it's uh, it, it's certainly no longer unfamiliar. And some of the uh, words in Urban Dictionary will make their way into the language and stay there. You know, others will slip out. Is um, is is there a suggestion you have uh, to go about? Improving our vocabulary. I mean, how how would you suggest we slowly improve not just the writing but our vocabulary, and maybe even go back and refresh on the rules? Uh, I think that uh, immersing yourself in in print. Uh, I mean, when I say print, I don't mean uh, uh, you know bleached wood pulp like dead trees right. necessarily. It could, it could it could be on a screen, but um, but reading uh, well written. Uh, prose, and that doesn't necessarily mean great authors. It could just mean the uh, you know the New York Times and or, or Time Magazine or uh, uh, Atlantic Monthly. Um, just uh, prose where whoever wrote it has been edited and obviously took some care uh, to to uh, be clear about what they mean. And just immersing that is, read the article instead of clicking on the video. Uh, because written uh, English is usually more precise than spoken, and it's just. It, sheer experience with the printed page that makes people better writers. Mm-hmm. The reason that, that, that most people of, who, who write well avoid the worst grammatical errors and spelling errors and punctuation errors isn't because they memorized a long list of rules. It's just that if you read enough, it just becomes second nature to you. The errors just pop out like, oh, they, that, that's just not English. You don't, you don't write like that. You don't <laughs> spell like that. Yeah. And you don't, need, you don't need to memorize the rules if you've spent, had enough experience Reading and it, and this it, it doesn't mean forcing yourself to uh, uh, you know read the, the necessarily the greatest literature. Right. That's an enormous source of pleasure. Uh, just read stuff that you enjoy and, and get it into your life, right? And I guess um, I mean when you immerse yourself in it, it's going to stick to you somehow, um, some way. I guess I always like to if I really don't know the word, just look it up. And now our computers are making that so easy we can just literally click on it, right-click on it, and we can get a definition of it. Exactly. Um, Take advantage of that. You bet. Well, and and I guess going forward, is our language isn't in jeopardy. It, it is not. Uh, it's just too important. Too many people find it too important to communicate in writing. Right. Uh, there's just no way that, that uh, it's going to disappear or degenerate. Well, I, I appreciate um, your insight on this and, and the book. I look forward to... Uh, 
to reading the book, The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. Appreciate it. Again, thank you so much, uh, Professor Steve Pinker. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Wonderful um, insight, too. I mean, as a writer, and I, I love to write, actually, but it does psych me out because I ah, you're vulnerable when you're writing, especially when you're writing and people are reading it. Um, and that's just the beginning. But some of this, folks, is just exercise, right? It's just exercising your thoughts, your mind. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot to learn, and you don't have to be a snob to enjoy it. Uh, I again, I, I'm I'm pretty blue collar when it comes to my speaking, and yet um, I do enjoy it when I actually get a chance. We'll take a break to, uh, you know, refresh, fluff the pillow a bit, and then we'll come back and uh, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks, uh, helping you get real life solutions to your real life problems. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, language, communications, you got it. It's all out there. Tons of stuff we need to know. But where do you begin? For heaven's sakes. Um, where do you begin? I'm I'm reading the Urban Dictionary, uh, 100 words from the Urban Dictionary that have changed the world. And sadly, I can't even use most of them. I can't, I can't use them. It's horrible. What am I supposed to do when I can't use the Urban Dictionary words on the air? I'll give you one that I can use. Um, do you know what blame storming is? Blaming someone a lot. You, uh, usually in a business setting, the act of attempting to identify who was to blame for the failure of a problem. And that's when everyone... You know, instead of trying to solve the problem, these they start using their brainstorming skills for who does who we're going to blame. We do that all the time in our meetings when you're not there. Yeah, I, I noticed it was a little bit calmer when I was there. Blame storming—that's an important word for you. How about uh, boomerang child? No idea. A child that throws a boomerang. Oh no! A child who moves out to start his or her own life, then returns home to live, often as a result of the economy but possibly due to irresponsibility of some kind. Uh, bromance. Okay, I know that one. It can be used as a noun or an adjective. Two heterosexual males with such a close relationship, they appear to be romantically involved. A bromance. <laughs> I'm editing. That's why it's quiet. Uh, you know, a cougar is an older woman who prefers a romantic encounter with a younger man. Or it's a... It's the mascot of the Brigham Young University. There's, it's just a coincidence, so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's a dog? Hey, dog. What? It's a best friend. You're like my dog. Yeah. Do you know what tweeting is? I don't. It's drunk tweeting. These are good. These are important. You need to know these things. I mean, people get caught up on grammar all day long. But what happens when some 
dog is tweeting at your party. You got to start blame storming, man. <laughs> Dude, this is one I use regularly. It's similar to a pronoun and commonly used, especially by skaters, surfers, stoners, radio talk show hosts, to address one another. Dude. With amazement or awe. Dude. Dude. <sighs> ego surfing. Do you know what that is? Surfing off your ego. It's using a search engine to look for a reference about yourself. Mm-hmm. Do that three times a day. Does anything change? Absolutely not. Can't even find myself. It's weird. <laughs> and I have a website, matttownsend.com. I can't even find it. <laughs> it's weird. Um, do you know what phopology is? Full apology? Faux apology. Faux apology. It's an insincere apology. It's fake. It's not real. You know this one. What is uh, a foodie? Someone who likes food. What's froyo? Frozen yogurt. Of course you know that. The weaker form of ice cream. What's hangry? Hungry. Hungry and angry. So when someone's angry and they're hungry, they're hangry. (laughs) <laughs> See, this is the stuff, folks, you don't get on other shows. On other shows, you don't get this type of depth, this education. Do you know what a humble brag is? Bragging even though you're humble. It's a boastful statement couched in false humility. Maybe used as a hashtag to draw attention to it before others do. Hashtag nailed it. Humbrag. Ah. <laughs> anyway, there's others. This is one that I saw you go through the other day. Meat sweats. What does that mean? It's to begin to perspire as the result of consuming large quantities of meat. Yeah. When you yesterday over... during the show, it was crazy. Do you remember that? Yeah. All that pastrami. You got the meat sweats. Yeah. It was mostly the salami inside the pastrami. Yeah. Yeah, that was a lot. It was more salami than pastrami. Okay, so if somebody sends you an email and the email says NSFW, do you know what that means? Like in the title? This is interesting because you may see this on your kid's you know, phone or something. In 20 years. Yeah, good point. Or 30. Uh, NSFW means not safe for work. Inappropriate for the workplace. Don't be pulling this up. Don't be looking at this. NSFW. That's cool. That's I mean, that's a good thing to know. Party foul. Do you know what a party foul is? Doing something inappropriate for a party. You did one on the show a, a while ago um, that was a major party foul. It's, I, I it's didn't know you, that was a party, though. Well, not a, it's not a party anymore. An action that's socially unacceptable at a social gathering or on the radio. Party foul. I don't want, I mean, I'm not down on you. I'm just trying to edumacate you. Yeah, well, I'll try and stop those party fouls, dude. The, and have you ever heard of a pregret? Something you regret before you do it. Yeah. You're full of those. <laughs> I, I shouldn't do this, but so anybody, anytime somebody says, you know, uh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this, that's a pregret. Like, you should have thought about that on the show the other day. Yeah, that was actually. I was pre-regretting that. <laughs> now you regret it. Anyway, great learning, folks. That's what you get here on the Matt Townsend Show. We don't – we're here to help. We're here to lift. We're here to serve Ben and I 24-7. We never leave the place. You can find us 
on our podcast at BYU Radio app. Go find it. Thousands, billions of shows. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your good friend, your coach, your guide on the side. We was, do, that, was that a humble brag? That was a, what do we call that? Um, oh, boy. It's got to be a humble brag. Yeah, that that may have been a humble brag, but that had a different name, didn't it, than humble brag? I don't remember. Because you're, you, you're uh, we're trying to be real hip by by learning more of the urban dictionary. You're boasting about the whole guide on the side thing. Mm-hmm. You talk about how you're a doctor. Yeah, like we're all yeah. supposed to go. Oh, he's but that's a not even very humble. Well, it, it is in a sense that you're, you're. I like it. He's putting it out there as evidence as to why you should listen. But he's, he's not really a doctor, but he's saying he's a doctor, so he's uh, not being very... Oh, 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 hold it. Uh, I am a doctor. I'm a doctor. Doctor. He's, he's a doctor. He's a doctorate. Yeah, doctorate of philosophy. You're the guy that like makes your kid feel better because he fell. It's that kind of doctor. Wow. No. Oh, that's you were talking about a humble brag. You just diminished boastful... him in a very strong way. Good job. Yeah. You help the kid who skinned his knee. <laughs> no, that would cope be, that would with be a... the emotional stress of skin of of you know skinning his knee. Whereas a yeah. doctor of medicine would actually fix the injury. Right. That's the difference. Right. And then the child would probably rob a bank later in life because somebody didn't fix the heart and the soul. Anyway, that's what we do on the show. We fix the heart and the soul, and we do it with um, – but, but nothing medical. Yeah. We don't check moles. We don't, <laughs> we don't do anything like that. I'm not going to fix your varicose veins. Not that kind of doctor. But we do work on your heart and your head and your hopes and for some, your dating life. Um, not for anyone in the studio, but – No. No. That's more of a personality issue. It's kind of far beyond the scope. It's more of a hygiene thing. That's part of it. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> anyway, um, got a great show for you coming up. Uh, one of my favorite guests, we have him on all the time to talk about materialism. Uh, Dr. Tim Kasser will be joining us. About how materialism and being a materialistic person could impact your relationships. You know? Like you're always like, whoa, look at my Rolex instead of looking in your partner's eyes. You know, there's a day you take your eyes off the Rolex, look in the eyes. If your relationship's based on gift giving. Yeah. Instead of. If it's shallow. Yeah. If every time you go on a date, it's like, you want to make ice cream? That would get old. It's going to get old fast. That's, That's true love, though. For some. Um, again, that, that was the voice of Ben, who's been fighting off some meat sweats all morning. He had a big breakfast. 
Apparently it was salami and yeah. pastrami and all sorts of ami. Lots of ami. Edamami. <laughs> oh, no, that wouldn't make him sweat. So we will be talking about uh, materialism and how it can impact your relationships in just a few minutes. Uh, you may have noticed um, there was there was a, a win yesterday in the Nevada caucuses for Sir Donald Trump. There was. He ran away with it, so to speak. He 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 didn't even just run away with it. He killed it, and he loves everybody that was involved. We won the evangelicals. We won with young. We won with old. We won with highly educated. We won with poorly educated. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. And you know what I really am happy about? Because I've been what? saying it for a long time. What? 46% with the Hispanics. 46%. Number one. He loves everybody, and the Hispanics apparently love him. 46% of the vote, which when you think about it is roughly half of the GOP, which would be roughly half of the country. It's 9% of the people who voted in Nevada. Okay. Yeah, 9%. 9% of probably they were expecting probably 40,000. They said it was a high turnout, so probably 50,000, 60,000, so 9% of that is the Latino vote, and he took 45% of the 9%. So, so I mean, he's he, he nailed 4.5% of the vote. There you go. The Latino vote, Hispanic vote. <sighs> Congratulations to him. Uh, apparently, the Jeb Bush, you know, issue of where the votes are going to go, they didn't necessarily just go to Marco Rubio, it doesn't appear. They seem to have gone right to Donald Trump because he... He went up to 45, 46 percent of the vote. Interesting, interesting uh, story there. One of the things that keeps coming up in the presidential election uh, that Terry pointed out with a really great graphic Hmm. is in the 2016, they always talk about this always uh, the discussion, the argument between Hillary Clinton and uh, the burn uh, Bernie Sanders is that she takes all this money from Wall Street donors. And so that's why he wants her to release her transcripts about what she said in front of all those donors. But apparently the person that takes the most money from Wall Street donors would be uh, Theodore Cruz, a.k.a. Ted Cruz. $11 million from Wall Street donors. Bush, $7 million. But we're not even talking about him anymore. <laughs> but Hillary Clinton comes in a close third uh, or a, a third $5.2 million from Wall Street donors. And that depends on what you call a Wall Street donor. Yes. I would say any donations that were addressed from Wall Street, a Wall Street donor. No, this wouldn't be a surprise. Ted Cruz's wife worked for Goldman Sachs. Right. They know people. Her name was Jenny Sachs. Why wouldn't they donate? That's right. These are her friends. These are her people. But when you're out there railing against certain groups of people that donate money and they happen to be the group that you have taken money from, it looks kind of sketchy. Now, does Donald take money from Wall Street? Of course. Of course he does. Everyone does. But he's not taking money. That's what he says. Then then the numbers come out, and he's taking some donations from people. And he's, he's take, taking a little bit. He's uh, approached the uh, the Koch brothers. We had a report of that a couple weeks ago. And they haven't given money to anyone because they're as confused as everyone else is. <laughs> That's it. They're all <laughs> holding back on their money. Nobody wants to release the money. They're not sure if the money will go to... Uh, 
the causes they want it to. They don't know if it'll achieve the ends they're looking for. Yeah. Which is the same reason why I don't donate money. (laughs) That and my lack of money to donate. But still. You got to have money. I stand on principle. I don't know where this is going. I don't know if I'm going to put my money behind it. Yeah. Do I just throw money willy-nilly everywhere? No. Like, here's $5. Yeah. That $5 is good. I say five because that would be the donation. (laughs) Has, Has Ben ever come up to you and said, excuse me, sir, do you have... Do you have a dollar for bus fare? No, he has not. He does that to me every day. That's because I think I can get it from you. He rides a bike. Is it a bike or yeah. a skateboard? He never or? even a takes bike, the bus. Yeah. He rides a bike here. He lives fairly close to the studio, so he rides a bike over. So you rode a skateboard one day. Yeah. That was and during the winter, I kind of walk. Okay. Why? Why, no, why no skateboard during the winter? Because I don't want to die. Okay. I told him he needs to think about the fact that he needs to be here. Yeah. Right. I need him here. Mm-hmm. I, I and if anything happens to him, I need a text. So yeah. So if, if I'm, we need to know if I have a broken arm, broken leg, or if I fell in a ditch somewhere, I'm gonna text Terry. Text me first. Uh, let me know you won't be here, and then deal with whatever emergency. Would carry a phone need. call be better? I I might not be able to talk though. Whichever way better gets the information across. Okay. You know what? Just have your next of kin notifies. Okay. That sound bad? I mean, I don't want to be, but let's get direct. Just have your people next, oh, kin. Just give us a call. Okay. They don't have to call us; just text us. Well, don't don't you want don't you want the notification before the show starts? Well, that's really yeah. the point. Isn't yeah. It? yeah. When we start the show, Ben needs to be here. Yeah, and if you're if you're dead, let us know. That's what yeah. I I told I'll, him that too. I'll send an angel. Death is not an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Happy uh, Tortilla Day, by the way. National Tortilla Day. Tortilla Chip Day. Ah, oh, it's a great day. You don't want to misidentify the That's day. That's true. It's, it's a chip day. We're not, we're not celebrating all tortillas, just the tortilla chips. Um, let's get to the headlines. What's going on, Terry? Anything going on around the rest of the world we need to pay attention to? Thanks, Matt. Ben Carson didn't let his apparent fourth-place finish in Nevada caucuses ruin his mood Tuesday night. He said, I believe things are starting to happen here, he told supporters. Carson saw a lot of enthusiasm in all the places that we went. Very enthusiastic crowds, he said, adding that the pundits and political class were wrong to say he was struggling to connect with voters. Uh, Carson finished with 5% of the vote, while First place finisher Donald Trump had 45%. Carson drew a comparison between the United States and the Roman Empire when Rome was burning, the LA Times reports, but he said the country could snap out of its decline. We have a bunch of fire extinguishers, Carson told a cheering audience, and we're going to put the fire out, and we're going to we're going to put a fire in our bellies. Wow. Yeah. I don't hey, know. and we're going to put the heads back on those dismembered people. I mean, it's a bad metaphor. Like, it is. You don't want Rome burning to be the metaphor. For your political campaign. I mean, you'd want a phoenix rising out of the ashes. So the whole point is he's not dropping out yet. But he also even says he's heading in the right direction. But he actually had fewer percentage votes than the other state he was just in. He did. He's going so backwards. but the wrong direction. We got 13 states coming up. He's convinced they're going to be successful. Yeah, there's people in those states. There's people there. The L.A. School or LA school Police Department has returned the last of the grenade launchers, military armored vehicles, and rifles they were given through a Department of Defense program, the district said in a letter on Monday. <laughs> so the L.A. school district does not have any grenade launchers anymore. So what are we going to do for P.E.? 
<laughs> no more P.E.? On Tuesday, activists reportedly commandeered a school board committee meeting asking for proof of the turnover. Strategy Center Director Eric Mann said his group wants proof that the weapons were returned in addition to an apology from the school district. A spokeswoman, Shannon Harbor, would not say how many rifles had been returned, but in 2014, the district had 16 M16 automatic rifles. The school district. Seems like you'd need more. That's crazy. They had grenade launchers. And military assault vehicles and 61 M16s. Uh, Jimmy, can you come to the principal's office? <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is back to the militarization of the police yeah. force in the country. Like how much, how much, every community, the little place where I live has an armored assault vehicle that rolls around during parades. Oh, sure. You're like, well. <laughs> I don't see the problem. It's just, I, I, I don't know. But Sometimes, this is a school district. It is. Holy but it's, it was a defense department program where they're retiring yeah, equipment and they hand it out. Well, I mean, there's certain equipment. You shouldn't retire. Grenade launchers? A grenade launcher. I don't know. A, an ICBM missile? I don't think there. there's limits. Where did the school district put the missile? We're missing a missile! Do you hear the seagull? Yeah, there's a seagull right at the end. A seagull circling the beach on fire. Uh, tech giant Apple re- reportedly argue that the judge in their dispute with the FBI has infringed on the company's First Amendment rights, an Apple lawyer tells the LA mm. Times. They, cor- they say the courts have previously recognized that writing computer code is a form of speech protected by the Constitution. Apple chief executive Tim Cook has so far refused to follow an order requiring the company to unlock the iPhone used by uh, the gunman in the uh, San Bernardino attack and has argued that doing so would set a dangerous precedent. Is computer code protected speech? We're going to find out. Apparently. Oh, brother. Kind of goes to a crazy level here. Uh, Beijing has replaced New York City as the billionaire capital of the world. Really? Wow. According to the AP, Beijing now reportedly has 100 billionaires compared with New York, who has 95, including Donald Trump. But if he's president, he'll be moving to D.C. So D- does, does he still have a residence? Because President Obama's residence is Chicago. Well, then, yeah, he's got a lot of them. Donald can live in a lot of cities. Different measurements of wealth, such as the uh, Hunran Report, the standard used in the AP, uh, and the Forbes list have produced historically varied results in numbers of billionaires and how they spend their money in the world's richest cities. According to the report, Beijing acquired 32 new billionaires last year, while New York accrued only additional four. Hmm. Moscow came in third place with 66 total billionaires. But, yeah. Some of those were appointed or... They're appointed, in, yeah, in Moscow. But, you know, however, it doesn't matter how you become a billionaire. No. In it, my ass. Money is money. Money is money. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, we're losing our status. No longer the billionaire capital of the world. Uh, we'll take a break, come back, and be talking with Tim Kasser about uh, materialism. And the impact it has on your relationships. It's an interesting, uh, just an interesting discussion about how we see people differently, how we approach people differently when it comes to your focus on things. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
You know, materialism, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty common. We're, we're consumers in this country. And can being materialistic ruin your relationship or your marriage? Uh, many people might even feel like they're purchasing their relationship. And uh, with February being the month of love where we celebrate love, sometimes it feels that love comes with a price tag uh, with all the teddy bears and chocolates, engagement rings, wedding cakes. It can be hard to fill love from a credit card bill. Um, joining us on the phone is Tim Kasser, professor of psychology at Knox University. He joins us again. He's been on the show before and joins us today from Illinois to discuss how money and materialism relate to marriage. Uh, Tim Kasser, welcome back, Dr. Kasser. Thanks. Great to have, to be back. Great to great to have you. This uh, this topic. I mean, I work with couples all the time, and one of the top issues we uh, end up talking about is money. Money issues. Sure. Well, that's a fundamental part of living together, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And you would think that in the end, um, even if you even if you spend money the same, you know, everything would be perfect. Then we wouldn't fight about money. But some of the research shows that that's not necessarily true. That's right. So what we know from a variety of different studies that have been done over the last 10 or 15 years is that the more that individuals focus on values concerning making a lot of money and having a lot of possessions, uh, the worse their well-being in general. And uh, what some studies have been showing over the last 10 years or so is the worse their relationships in particular. And, of course, relationships uh, and their quality are one of the main predictors of people's well-being. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense that those are all interrelated like that. But there's a variety of reasons materialism has has, understood undermined relationships, it looks like, and lots of different ways that it seems to do that. Give us some of those. What I mean, I get it. I mean, it seems like if if we're into money or into we might spend more, that might create financial stress. But what else? What else? How does our materialism impact impact the relationship issue? Sure. Well, let me talk about some of the basic findings first, and yeah. then I'll kind of back up and try to explain how I understand them. Is that good? Yeah, please. That'd be great. You bet. Well, one of the most uh, important studies was actually done at BYU um, by uh, Dr. Carroll there and was published in 2011. And what they did was they studied about 1,700 couples uh, who were married, and they measured the materialism of each of the members of the couple, both the husband and the wife. And then they also measured the extent to which uh, basically the quality of the marital relationship And so when you think about it, you could either have in a couple, you could either have both of the couple's members are being low in materialism, you could have both of them being relatively high in materialism, or you could have one who's high and one who's low. Mm -hmm. And so that leads to a couple different predictions. On the one hand, if if it's just the materialism that's bad for the marriage, then you'd expect uh, the the higher the number of materialistic people in the couple, the worse the relationship. On the other hand, if it's about sort of value alignment, then the low-low couples and the high-high couples should be better off than the mixed couples. Right. right? And what Carol found was more support that it's the materialism and not the value alignment which ends up undermining people's uh, happiness. So they found that the people with the most satisfying marriages, with the most stable marriages, with the best communication in the marriage, were the people who were both low in materialism. And the couples that were both high in materialism had the worst conflict resolution, oh, wow. the worst communication. They were sort of more me-centered than yeah. other-centered. Right. And so that ended up uh, messing up the relationship, as you can imagine. 
So, you know, and this complements a variety of other studies that have been done sort of outside of the realm of marriage, but, but more in just what people's interpersonal relationships are like. And what that research shows is that the more people focus on materialistic values, um, the less empathic they are in their relationships, so the less they try to understand why somebody is feeling what they're feeling. The more trouble they have balancing work and family, uh, the less likely they are to be helpful and sharing and things like that. So, and you know, those are all things it takes to have a successful marriage. It's and then are these which came first the the materialistic kind of paradigm of life then led to not having these abilities, or these abilities led to them becoming more medicated by materialism. <laughs> Well, I think probably both of them are are related. And, you know, I tend to be a both-and person rather than either-or person. You know, we know um, from the research that if you actually – so there there are experiments where you can um, momentarily get people to be more materialistic. So, for example, there's a Mm -hmm. famous set of studies by Kathleen Vos at Minnesota – What she did was she just had people either unscramble sentences or phrases like that would lead to something neutral, like, you know, it's on the desk, or something money-related, like a high-paying salary. And what she found was that the subjects who had unscrambled sentences that had to do with money, when later on they were asked to be helpful or to make donations or to volunteer their time, they were less likely to do those things, those pro-social things, than uh, the neutral group. She also found that, you know, when uh, they had the chance to either work together or work um, alone, people who had just been thinking about money were more likely to want to work alone and less likely to want to be in a group. So that's pretty good experimental evidence that suggests that the causal arrow runs from the materialism to the bad relationship, Hmm. right? You know, just by having thought of money, that seems to undermine uh, the kinds of behaviors that we know support good relationships. And so that suggests that, well, people who have materialistic values, maybe that's actually causing them to be um, less pro-social in their intimate relationships. That's great. I mean, when you think about just dating somebody, you might start picking up on some of those signs. Yes, I think that would be um, a wise thing to to do is to pay attention to, you know, what what's the person talking about? How's the person dressed? What does the person tell you uh, in terms of the stories, that, you know, are the stories about shopping and the cool things that they bought and how their friends are so impressed by the car they drive or are there stories about other kinds of uh, values and other kinds of topics. Mm. It's it's interesting because these these are ideas that you would that as a parent and I watch my children dating. I'm I'm like oh be careful that's so they, sometimes you hear high maintenance yeah. that person might be more high maintenance or <laughs> more you know willing to jump off the cliff for something. But man, it all of a sudden it's jiving with the research. So some of these just natural feelings we have as a parent they really uh, I guess we're pretty accurate. Well, I think so. You know, I, you know, lots of times what research does, sometimes it can tell us things that seem to go against our intuition. But I think in the case of most of the materialism research, it ends up oftentimes supporting a lot of what many wisdom traditions have told us over, you know, the millennia. But, of course, there's this whole other set of messages out there um, in consumer culture that are propounding a different set of ideas about what a happy and meaningful life are. And those 
are the ones that are trying to convince us that it is good to be materialism, materialistic, so or that, you know, having somebody who's going to make a lot of money, you know, that's what's going to make you happy. And so, you know, while there are, you know, the, the one set of messages out there that I think a lot of parents can attend to, there's a whole lot of competing messages out there from television and the internet and our politicians and business people trying to get us to focus on materialistic values. Totally true. Let's um, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Tim uh, Kasser. He's a professor at, of psychology at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, and has authored numerous scientific articles and book chapters on materialism, values, and goals, among other topics. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion about materialism and your love uh, and your relationships. Interesting, interesting learnings, I think, for all of us. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks, hoping to help you find the good in the world. to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, when you think about it, how much... I mean, if you love your fiancé, you really should go in debt to get her a ring because if she has a super nice ring on her finger, you know the marriage will last. Let's find out from our our guest. uh, Dr. Tim Kasser is joining us and is helping us kind of sort through the power of love and and how it's impacted by our... Our other paradigms, like materialism, and 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 some of the issues around materialism, uh, Doctor Tim Kasser, uh, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. What what do you think about that idea? We just heard that uh, uh, one of the jewelry stores trying to get people to buy a wedding ring were saying that you know you need about ten percent of your income should go into your the should be the price for your ring for your spouse. Well, it's funny. You know, I was on a radio show about six months ago, and I said something that I probably said ten times before. And I've always said, you know, if if the relationship uh, depends upon the ring that you buy her, you know, the relationship's in trouble, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you got something else going on. You got something else going on. That's right. And the the host said, you know, there was just a study published about that, and I was like, really? And so uh, she sent me the she sent me the study, and it, I've been looking at it. And it's by some researchers at Emory, and what they did was they studied a whole lot of people who were married, and they studied whether the marriage stayed together or whether the marriage ended in divorce, and they found that if you spent more than $2,000 on the wedding ring, there was an increased chance of divorce than if you spent less than 2000 on the wedding ring. And, <laughs> and, and similarly, the, the more that you spent on the wedding day itself, the increases in, in uh, divorce were likely to be seen. So for example, um, they found that People who spent um, between ten thousand and twenty thousand dollars on the wedding day, there was an increase of almost thirty percent in divorce. And if you spent more than twenty thousand dollars on the wedding day, there was a forty-six percent increase. Holy in divorce. cow! Right. So you know, and what's interesting though is that they found that uh, wealthy, the you know, wealthy people were less likely to get divorced, um, and people who were having big weddings were also less likely to get divorced. So. So this isn't just about, you know, that wealthy people are um, 
not, know, yeah. that's not the issue. They're not, so yeah. I think what it is is it's about materialism. Again, it's that, you know, a materialistic person thinks, oh, I need to buy something expensive in order to show my love. They may be getting pressure from their materialist spouse to spend a lot of money on the ring, and you put two materialist people together, and they're going to think, well, what's the way to celebrate? Well, we need this fancy that, and we need to have right. it at this nice place, and the food has to be X and Y. And that's not what it's really about. What it's about is bringing together the people you love and the people who love you for a day of celebration, even if it's, you know, eating eating something uh, in a macaroni and cheese, that's right. at, uh, you know, in somebody's backyard. You know, that's what the wedding is about. That's what the relationship is about. And the, and the same goes for the ring too. I mean, I'll maybe my wife will be mad if I I say this, but you know, I I proposed with a pine cone actually. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we ended up we we did buy buy some very inexpensive rings, but, you know, my proposal was with a pine cone, you know, and That's we cool. still have, we still have it, you know, it's, it's in our, in our dining room there. Does she you know? wear it on her hand? No, like no, a corsage no. on her wrist for that. But what we did actually was we had uh, I have PNCN on the inside of my ring, and she has IEOE on the inside, and so together it spells pine cone. Oh, neat. Um, you know, so I mean, but they're like hundred fifty dollar rings or yeah. something like that. But you know what I remember, and I, what we both remember, I think, is the pine cone. So, and certainly what her mother remembers. <laughs> yeah, he gave you a pine cone. <laughs> That is so funny. They we just we just uh, looked up on the interweb um, about the I guess the average rings uh, the price for rings is four thousand dollars. Yeah, and the average uh, cost of a wedding is something like thirty thousand. I know. Um, you know, so it's it, you're talking about people going into debt. Um, or using the savings that they could be using to for a down payment on a house, or to save for retirement, or save for their college's edu- you know kids' education, or pay off their student loans. Yeah. You know the the money is going to be blown on one big day of you know of feasting and such. You know, and again, I'm not saying people shouldn't celebrate, but um, it, it it to me it's a warning sign, right? It's a warning sign of, you know, that this couple is thinking about money and thinking about their love in a particular way mm-hmm. that is symptomatic of of problems ahead. And all you need to do is watch TLC and you'll see Bridezilla mm-hmm. and whatever the dress show is and you watch that for for a good hour. Yeah. You're just going to you're going to want to elope. Well, exactly. And, and I think, well, most, you know, some people are, but the fact is, is that unfortunately, because of those messages of consumer culture, because of all the messages that suggest that, you know, love depends upon spending money that we get from consumer culture, it's hard to resist that in some respects, you know, and you got to remember, a lot of people are making a lot of money off of couples spending money on their oh. Totally. Their wedding and on the rings, you know. So it's again, it goes back to the the economic and the cultural system in which we exist, which suggests that a happy, meaningful life and a happy, meaningful wedding depends upon spending spending things. Hmm. And in the end, I guess, um, what are the things we we should watch out for? What you know, if I'm a parent, what do I coach my kids to look out for? Well, the way that. 
understand materialism is that it's a value. It's something which is, you know, important. It's something which people strive for. But it's only one of many values that exist in the human value system. So as a psychologist, you know, myself and others have done a fair bit of research on how the human value system is structured. And we, in our science papers, we call materialistic values, we call them extrinsic values. They're values that are focused on, you know, rewards, on uh, other people saying how great you are and status and things like that. Now, we contrast those with what are called the intrinsic values. And the intrinsic values are values for, like, your own personal growth, for having good relationships and contributing to the community. And what we know is that those values act like a seesaw. As one becomes more important, the other tends to become less important. And so, you know, to me, part of the problem of materialism, and I think part of why it's related to all these bad outcomes with regard to marriage is that materialism ends up suppressing those intrinsic values. It crowds them out and it crowds and intrinsic values are the ones that we know promote good relationships and happiness. And so the main thing that, you know, I would encourage listeners to be watching out for is sort of that balance in a person's value system between those extrinsic and materialistic values on the one hand and the intrinsic values for growing and caring and contributing to the world on the other. You know, we, we have to be a little materialistic in a culture like ours. You know, we got to eat. Got to gotta, pay the bills. You got to pay the bills. That's right. You know, but but it's when those materialistic values become more and more dominant that um, I start to raise my eyebrows and think, okay, something is awry here. And so that's the balance that I would encourage people to, to be thinking about as they're having conversations with the people they love. And, you know, and, and, and if you're starting to see that somebody seems to be leaning towards that materialistic end, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but to, to kind of open up the conversation. Because, you know, my experience is even very materialistic people, what they want is to be loved. What they want right. is to have a good relationship. It's the, the problem is that they're kind of going about it in a backwards way. They're going about it in a way that actually can end up undermining their ultimate goal. And, and you can use the, even the process of getting married as a way to have these conversations and sort through what our values are. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's crucial for a couple as they're um, heading into deciding about getting married. You know, it's it's important to be, you know, making sure that, you know, we, I don't want to say that your your values are the same because if you're both materialistic, the research shows that won't be good. Right, that's going to be a problem. Know, that, but trying to make sure that, you know, you're going to base your relationship and your lives together more around those intrinsic values. And, and you know, uh, the wedding and the, the ring are a great way to start um, reflecting that and to start expressing your love in an intrinsic way, and hopefully it'll carry you through for 50 years or more. Oh, that's great advice. Uh, Dr. Tim Castor, thank you. Thanks for again being with us and walking us through marriage and materialism. You're very welcome. Again, you can go find more out about uh, uh, Dr. Tim Kasser. At, uh, he's a professor of psychology at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. Um, he's also uh, a writer, and, and you can find his work online. Great stuff. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going to be coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
it's me I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to me to go over Welcome back everybody Everything Just celebrating with Adele We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU uh, Sports Nation Spencer and Jerem Hello Ja-Omen From the other side From the other side you guys want to sing? The mood that she brings uh-huh. is unbelievable. Oh, I know. I know. I'm sure you guys have seen her live. You, don't, you, you two don't miss a concert. Well, there's such a difference between us and a million miles. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you. No, I've never seen Adele in concert. She's I don't so think, talented. I, I just watched her on uh, Carpool Karaoke. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that great? With uh, James... Uh, Gordon? 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 Yeah, I, I call him Jimmy the Fourth. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Really he's funny. A, really, a, really cool. He's a prince or something over there. He's, um, I'm just kidding. He's, he's, got, he's got props. He's he, can, he can drive and sing, and he's got a great voice. Oh, he's really good. Yeah, he was, like he's singing he in harmony with Adele, and she's like looking at him like, I know. what in the world? <laughs> Did you see him with Elton John? Yeah, also good. <laughs> He's great. You know, not, you, yeah. there's two things that that bring the mood, like you just said. Uh, Adele, obviously one. Mm. Uh, number two, if you're Kyrie Irving, bed bugs. Oh man, that's disgusting, okay. right? That, what is this? 1904. <laughs> I know. So tell. So Kyrie goes to o- Oklahoma City, and uh, you know, just goes to the team hotel and take goes to sleep, but gets bitten by bed bugs. Like, you Did guys know sleep sports. On straw? Apparently, he slept in a barn. Sleep in a barn? <laughs> Listen, the plan that was implemented by the Oklahoma City Thunder didn't work That's... because the Cavs won the game. I know. If we can just take Kyrie out with some bed bugs, <laughs> Uncle Drew don't get no bed bugs. <laughs> Dude, that is just sick. I didn't know bed bugs still existed in like five star hotels. I thought they were like banned. Yeah. Can the Cavs? What where are they staying? Like, what hotel are they staying at? I don't know, but I'm I'm scared because if I were that's why I wouldn't. That's why I don't play in the NBA. I don't want lice. I don't want bed bugs just because I traveled to nice hotels to play ball. It's my number one concern at the desk. <laughs> are it's, there bed bugs in this facility? Is that what you ask every time? Yeah, and they go no, and I go okay. I go prove it. Are you guys <laughs> weird? Can, never can. Are you guys weird when you go into a hotel room and do you like? Do you, like, put the remote in a bag and... No. You're not weirded out by all of that? Nope. I'll, I'll like, ju- like, if there's two queens or whatever, I'll just, like, jump on both for, like, a couple minutes just to check the firmness. <laughs> like, dive around and stuff. Oh, yeah. I and think I've like, actually okay, been in a room is... after you. Yeah. and th- Yeah. Where you broke the springs and stuff. I, I wish I was so rich to where I could just trash a hotel room and be like, whatever, man. Whatever. <laughs> 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 that was, that's when I'll know, like, okay, yeah. I've made it. And, and and the uh, and the the cleaning ladies come in and there's sprite bottles everywhere. Yeah, because you cause, just just because Jerem was in there partying. This is out of control. <laughs> like I used most of the shampoo and didn't throw it away. Like I mean, crazy I stuff. I know. He stole a bar of soap. All the towels are on the floor. Like wow. <laughs> the, out of control. The lamp is busted. The TV's off the wall. That's what I'm talking. Yeah. This Bed's is great. Flipped over. That's true. You guys. Crazy. But Next you guys week in Vegas, we'll you, try that out and see what happens. Oh, you're going to Vegas? Oh, West Coast Conference tournament. 
Oh, come on. Yeah. We're going down. Uh, we'll be down there next Wednesday night. Do you guys we'll want me to open? Down there Thursday, I'll, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday. I'll open for you. If you guys want me to go down there, you I'll do, do my show. every sh- day for three hours. No, but I'll do my show there. Oh. Uh, talk to Sheeline. See what he thinks. Because Sheeline, because um, you you always you guys get to go and then you get a swim and stuff and you, you go to all the concerts. It just I just thought maybe you, you need me to to open the, your show f- you know for you. We'd love for you to party with us. I I just I haven't seen any good concerts while we're down there. Unfo- well, we're super busy while we're down there with some football football games. It was do the show uh, and then you know we could then we hit, had some free time. hit the strip. This there's. Right. 11 games in like three or four days and oh, all yeah. these um, shows from our desk and, uh, you know, during the game, BYU Sports Nation in the morning, Saturday show. Wow. Stuff. Yeah. Sounds it's horrible. Like, it's a little busier. Yeah, it is busier. Yeah. Well, no, and then, we, we love it. We love well, it. and then you know what will be, I think, just a great time for the both of you is when you're de-lousing each other and <laughs> you're picking bugs out of each other's head. Oh, as in removing lice? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's called de-lousing? I think so. Oh, it's gross. That was always the huge fear in elementary school. It's like, please don't have No, lice. you just shave your head if you have lice, dude. <laughs> That's why I shaved <gasps> Is that why you shaved <laughs> the your real, head? The real truth comes out. I it knew it. It was convenient that BYU won at I Gonzaga. I went to Spokane. It was a weird hotel. Yeah. I got no, lice. I remember. I'm like, I'll just shave it anyway. Well, Spencer, you remember. He used to just, like, he, he was always, like, itching his, or, or scratching, scratching his head. The lice never bothered me anyway. <laughs> Not true. I shaved it. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> I think I, um, when I hear lice, I always think of Billy Madison. When he just he puts like sugar or flour on his hair. <laughs> and the nurses And the nurses look through his hair like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> You guys. Hey, uh-huh. um, happy National Tortilla Chip Day. It's National Tortilla Chip Day. Mm-hmm. Every day in my house. Tortilla. My mom's Mexican. Every day is National Tortilla Chip Day in my house. I did not know that. Whether it's Doritos or Tostitos or some other store brand bought tortilla chip, there's yeah. rarely a day that goes by that I don't consume at least one tortilla chip. <laughs> I know. I don't even want to, but I do. I do it I c- for the yeah. family. Totally. You have to. Are you guys doing that show thing today? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, after so after you get the you know the bud bug bed bugs out. Hey, did you have an Olympian on your show today? Uh, as a matter of fact, no. But I did have an astronaut. And um, the first heart recipient, uh, the first artificial heart recipient. Wow. Well, whatever, dude. You set him up for that. <laughs> just <man>. kidding. <laughs> you just us. But you ought to listen an to astronaut? the show. <laughs> Harder to be an astronaut than an Olympian. Yeah, especially the first heart recipient. You recipients went all Brian Reed on me there. Oh, yeah? I, I walked on the moon. <laughs> well, if I was an Olympian or astronaut, I would try and do the other thing. What? Because that is untoppable. Did you hear about the music that the the people orbiting the uh, moon list they heard the space music? You didn't hear this. What happened? Back Are in you the day, right now, true story. Like Apollo ten when it was orbiting the moon, they could hear space music on the other side of the moon. What do you mean space music? It was like that. True story. What? It was what our other brethren in the galaxy, uh-huh. and they 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 talked to each other, and they're like. Are we sh- talk- should- now you're no 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 they didn't talk to the people playing the music, they talked to the other astronauts in the sh- in the orbiter or whatever, and they were like, "Are we supposed to tell people we just heard that?" It was and it was uh, Matthew McConaughey. In no, the this was it, it. May have been it may have been some floating astronaut. Yeah, that's really cool, but it's also kind of creepy. I know it's totally creepy. That, I just I can, I'm bringing I that into you guys. Show? I know now. 
Yeah, I know. Sorry. Sorry to freak you out. This is the one day we're not doing the show now. I know. Sorry. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you blew it. it. You did this. It's on you, man. Sorry, I just ruined your We your have an mojo. Olympian on the show, or soon-to-be cool. Olympian. Jared cool. Ward just yeah. qualified. Third cool. fastest marathoner in the country. Wow. Speedy. That's cool. What else you got on the show? I mean, Dave Olympian. Rose in studio. Head ball coach of the men's hoops team. Huge, huge. Uh, last week of the regular season, we'll ask him about the health of the team, what to expect against Portland Gonzaga. And what do you want to see most out of BYU football in spring football? March Madness isn't just week. about college basketball, man. Right on, dude. Totally. Mostly, though. But yeah, there's it's mostly spring about football, that. baby. Hey, and will you just ask Dave Rose if he's ever had lice or bed bugs as a problem on the road? It'll be, it'll be in the queue. We'll okay, throw that out there. Just throw, I mean, I'm not right. running your show. Okay, guys, have a great show. Thank you. Knock them dead. Shave your Love heads you. if you if you find the bugs. Just remember that. <laughs> Little update. Take care. That's cool. I hope they don't have bed bugs because wouldn't that be bad? It wouldn't that be bad if I ruined their show because I talked about the astronaut thing. I just like to give them the truth. I like to bring them some light. You know, as Ben laughs at me. Hey, um, you got to th- – this is going to go down, I guess, in the in the, uh, the – I don't know what we call it. Kind of, I guess, the, the stupid people file, if that makes sense. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has been telling us for a long time that if you see something, say something. Now police at, Ohio, at Iowa State University are giving the same message after nobody called police – to report a bizarre, cra- a bizarre crash Tuesday morning in which an out-of-control SUV landed on top of several parked cars on campus. Oh, come on! I know! The wreck drew lots of attention from a number of people who pulled out their cell phones and they didn't use their phones to call 911. They actually used their phones to take pictures and selfies with the car on top of other cars. But nobody bothered to call the police. (laughs) Now, folks, we got to care more than that. When you see a horrible accident and a car is on top of another car and there's, you know, a human being inside, at least one of them. ah, Not a good time. Not a good time to take a selfie. Not a good time. You know, obviously, call 911, then take the selfie. Get your priorities straight, folks. I think that's great analysis. Thank you very much. You got to get your priorities straight. These are people. Anyway, just a little update for you. Hey, um, a local hero. We always like to do a hero story. Our hero of the day is uh, named Clinton Trusty. No relation to Hillary or Bill. The littlest patients at Le Bonheur uh, Children's Hospital in Memphis are all housed on the first, fourth floor. That is where you will find the neonatal intensive care unit. And it's also where you will find Clinton Trustee volunteering four days a week. 91 people walk through the doors at the hospital to work as a baby hugger. But there is one super volunteer who has spent the last 10 decades doing just that. Little Trinity arrived a little earlier than expected. She was supposed to be born on Christmas Eve, Father Floyd Johnson said. And since Dad cannot be at the NICU unit all of the time, volunteers like Clinton Trusty are there to offer a helping hand. He is a baby hugger, a volunteer job that he started 22 years ago. Well, I was just about to retire, and I knew I couldn't go home and just sit down since he had logged 20,000. Since then, he's logged 20,000 hours at the hospital. 
says, although I've never been married and had no children, I just kind of like babies, Trusty said. He's good at it. He's a little unconventional, but he has just got away with babies that is really special. Most men that I have talked to have said, oh, I couldn't possibly do what you're doing. Well, they haven't tried. You have a sick baby and they need comforting or whatever, Trusty said. He said, babies sometimes come in fighting for life uh, with their life-threatening diseases. And so every little bit of touch and every little bit of love helps. He says, I think getting that positive touch and being soothed and helping them being in a happier state helps them to grow better and get better faster. Anyway, uh, Clinton Trusty, you are our hero of the day. Giving up your time, your heart, and your hugs for, uh, you know, innocent, perfect little babies that are just fighting for their life. 22 years of it, my friend, you are a hero. And folks, I think that's what we all need. Just a little hug, a little focus, a little attention, just like uh, Clinton Trusty gives the children. Remember, we can do that for each other. Just be there. Open your eyes. Pay attention to each other. That's why we do the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you see the good in the world. Until tomorrow, watch out for each other's backs and uh, let's make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>